Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Morrissey looking for Barron, shoots and scores. Heck of a shot from Morrissey. Gets the crowd to their feet in Winnipeg. Knife that one past the glove of Jordan Bennington, and it's a 2-1 game. In the slot, they shoot and score. Brutal giveaway by the Blues, and the Jets have tied it up. Morrissey now, the Jets trying to tie it up. They're leading 3-0. They crash the middle of the net, tip it in past the goaltender. And it's a 3-2 Winnipeg lead. Wheeler to Shifley. Shifley's going to bring it in. He'll go to the back of the net. And another empty net goal given up by the Blues for the 16th time this season. They pulled the goaltender with a minute 46 to go. They got one attempt at the net and didn't get it on goal. The Blues are going to ride a five-game losing streak into the All-Star break as this one comes to a close in Winnipeg. Jordan Bennington deserved a better fate tonight. And the Yips bit the Blues again in the third period. I think one of the worst feelings to have, just in life really, is just not knowing. Not knowing what could have been, right? You get into a relationship, and for one reason or another, it goes sideways. And you just you don't have that sense of closure. Yeah, or maybe I hate you, that feeling. You never had that opportunity, right? You're great white buffalo, Tanner. I'm sure you had one of these at just one point in your life. Just in the countryside. You're just waiting. You're waiting for your chance to be able to give her that rose and you never get the chance closure is important and last night i had a sense of closure alongside tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley it's bk and ferrario here on 101 espn alex is in the most magical place on earth he's going to be out the rest of the week but he'll be back next monday with us tanner last night the final game going into this break that we all need desperately yes i felt like we watched the game where the Blues' chances of really getting this thing back on track came to an end. Now, I'm not telling you you shouldn't watch or listen to the rest of the season right here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. There's reasons to be interested in this team still, both in the media, in the immediacy and in the long term. But in terms of the question that we've been asking all season long of seller versus buyer versus hold, we got those answers. They've now lost five straight. They've lost seven of their last nine. They seem to be incapable of playing with an empty net. They have now allowed 23 different times this year, at least three goals in one period. And we saw that once again last night. This is who they are. They have a character flaw as a team, which is allowing way too many goals. And when we write the obituary for the 2023 Blues, that's what it's going to be. They couldn't keep the puck out of their net, and ultimately, that's what determined the outcome of the season. This is a seller. 
It's a clear and obvious seller. And over the next week, I have to imagine that Doug Armstrong is going to be working the phones. Yeah, I'm with you. They're they're clearly a seller. I mean, they're going in the All-Star break below a 500 points percentage. And when you look at the standings, yes, they are just eight points back of Colorado for that second wildcard spot. Every team ahead of them, though, has games in hand leading up to the All-Star break. So, yes, this team told you over the last five games that they are going to be sellers, that it is time to prepare yourself to sell off the pieces. You now have your closure. And honestly, I, I don't know if it makes me feel I, I know it doesn't make me feel better because I'd rather be watching a playoff team. But it feel better, feels better knowing going to the All-Star break. You know what? Yeah, they're going to be sellers rather than the deadline going, ah, you know, they're in it. I really don't want to see them sell their pieces. No, I've got my closure. I, I know they're going to be selling their pieces. And to your point, their obituary is going to read bad turnovers and yep. terrible goal suppression and that's what did it for the st louis blues this season and if you're doug armstrong like at least you know you know going yeah. into this break where i'm sure that there's a lot of general managers that are going to have some time on their hands they're going to be able to work the phones he knows exactly what his team is right now he knows what their strengths are he knows what their weaknesses are and he knows who's going to be available at the deadline now now, I don't think you're going to see Ryan O'Reilly dealt. I don't think that happens until after he comes back and shows that he's healthy. I don't even think you're going to see Vladimir Tarasenko dealt during this break. The The honest answer is I would set the over-under at trades during this break at zero and a half, zero point five, 0.5, because I'm not sure that they're going to get one done. I think this is where you start the conversations, though. Bo, ha- Bo Horvat was dealt yesterday. It, that is basically the, the start of what is going to be hopefully a busy trade season. It's now, what, five weeks away from the NHL's trade deadline. There's still plenty of time to be had here in terms of deciding where you're going to send these players, but we know they're going to be sent. We know they're going to be sent after what we saw last night. I mentioned their lack of goal suppression. Tanner, I was looking this up earlier today because I went back through just the game log, right, to try to think of, all right, what what's the theme here? What's been the issue? And I went through their last 20 losses, 20 of them. They've only had 25 this year in regulation. So this is the vast majority of the Blues losses. And the Blues last 20 games that they lost, there was only one in which they allowed three goals or fewer. And it was three. It came on December 11th against Colorado. It was a three to two game in overtime that they ended up losing. They've lost four to two, four to two. They gave, gave up five, 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 four, four, five, 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 three. Game that I just mentioned. Five, six, 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 four. Whoa. We know how they lose. It happens every time. It's the same story and over and over. This is not a team that loses two to one. We mentioned this early on in the season. It felt pretty clear how they were going to have to win. You're going to be able to win in shootouts. You're going to have to win. Six five five three. Those were going to be the types of games that this team was going to be playing, and they just they don't have right now the firepower to keep up consistently, and they certainly don't have the defensive game to be able to keep these opponents down into the the two one maybe three goals on a consistent basis. Yeah, and, and I don't know how they fix this issue moving forward. I truly don't because you look at their defensive core. Four of those guys are locked up long term deals: Letty, Krug, Falk, and Pareko. So. It's something that they're going to have to try figuring out. Do they reshape the defensive core in the offseason? It feels tough to do, even if you gain assets in trading O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko. I don't know if you can ship out these long-term big contracts. So how do you adjust this in the offseason? Does it go into the mindset of, you know what, we just got to find a way to outscore our problems? Uh, Maybe you go about it that way. Do you look for forwards that play a 200-foot style game? Can you do that with Kairou and Thomas on the roster? I, I don't know. The more and more I think about how the Blues are going to enter this kind of retool slash rebuild, whatever you want to call it, 
I'm having a tougher time seeing it be turned around quickly because I don't see the fix coming for the Blues' inability to stop goal goal suppression. I, I thought this defense was an issue for the last three seasons. It's now reared its ugly head. I mean, it was a problem for them last year. Last year, though, they got great goaltending, which lowered the goals against numbers mm-hmm. mightily when Billy Huso was playing well and when Bennington played well in the postseason, and they could outscore their problems. This year, you're seeing what their true colors were last year. When you get, I'm not saying Bennington's been bad, but when you don't get way above average goaltending and your five-on-five offense isn't there and your power plays not elite like it was last year, this is what they are. This is what they probably should have been last year if it weren't for their great offense and their great goaltending. So I'm, I'm starting to think this is going to be a longer process to turn this around than we all originally thought it was going to be. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. We did get this from the 314. Hey, guys, there's a lot of empty net goals that are included in those four or five goal games, but the point is that they were losing and then they ended up giving up those goals as well. I also think, like, to this texture's point, the empty net goals are symbolic of this team's issues. They struggle mightily to keep the puck in the offensive zone and get sustained offensive zone pressure. They just for whatever reason, seem to fail in that regard regularly. You'll see them with an odd man rush and they'll get their one shot and then it'll be coming back the other direction. Or they'll play that cycle game with the fourth line for a little bit. They'll get the next line on and then the puck's going the other way because of a bad turnover. And when you've got the empty net, like those turnovers result in empty net goals. They're the worst team in the NHL this season by a wide margin in giving up those empty empty net goals. It's almost become an expectation. I don't know about you. Oh, but I when, thought they were going to give up a goal last time. Yeah, when, they the when they took Bennington out of the net, my expectation was, all right, they're giving up a goal here. Because that's how it goes. And I'm not saying they, I mean, we mentioned this yesterday. You don't stop taking the, uh, the goalie out of the net because of that. You've got to continue trying. You've got to give yourself the best chance to be able to tie the game. But they're just bad at it. And it's because of all of the things that have gone wrong at five on five as well. Their five on five issues bleed into other parts of their game. Last night, thank God, they had a a good penalty kill outing. Otherwise, that could have gotten even worse earlier than it did. But this is this is who they are, man. And as much as I'm with you, like, yeah, maybe those numbers are bloated a bit because of the empty net goals. That's part of their problem. That's who they are at this point. And, and I don't know how they fix that offense of getting in the zone and having more possession in the offensive zone. I think part of it is, and I think we've mentioned this before, Alex has mentioned it before, I know, is they miss a net a lot. They they take a lot of shots, but they don't hit the net a ton. And that was something me and Alex were talking about, I think it was last week back in the office, was how, how do you fix that issue? Like, that that's something that should be an easy fix. This team all of a sudden just started missing the net. Like, it became a new problem this year. It feels like new problems have started to poke, poke their way out this year, and it just feels weird. Like, that offensive zone time, yes, that is a major issue for the Blues. I just don't know how you fix that. Like, I, I don't see a mentality in which you can fix that with the roster that you have and the guys that you have. And, and it's hard to figure out, is it a coaching-style thing? Is it a... Is it the player personnel that you have? I'm not 100% sure. That's the thing is like this team's issues are not easy to solve because you have to completely revamp the team. You've got to find a new identity. You've got to be able to figure out, okay, who are the players that we want around long term? I would be curious, honestly, 314-399-9646. Who are the players that you want to have a Blues uniform on this time next year? If it's you just definitively want back in St. Louis 
because they're not going to be able to get rid of all of these guys. You got to bring back a, a decent portion of them. They're building around Kyrou and Thomas for a reason, but I, I don't know, man. There's, and you want Pavel Buchnevich back. I would Green. want Braden Shin back. I would Green. want Jordan Bennington back with the way that he's performed so far this year. I think Jake Neighbors has really come around. Yeah, he came in my mind too originally. He's playing better um, at a decent price. I would take back Nolachari next year, whether that means you trade him and re-sign him or just re-sign him prior to the deadline. I like the way that he's performed this year. Brandon Saad, I think, has mostly been ex- as expected this season. And then there's Kairou and Thomas, and that's that's kind of it. You didn't name a defensive player nope. in any of that. So, that I mean, again, that just goes back to our point of what the problem is, and it's goal suppression. If there's not a defenseman that you would truly like to see back in a Blues uniform next year, then you know what your major. Then you know what your big problem is in the offseason. But again, it's tough to picture how you can retool a defensive core that has four guys locked up on big contracts. Oh, and by the way, Scandella is making what was it four million dollars when he returns to the lineup next year. So, five guys that I can see where they just may struggle to move them. Talk about a tough offseason to retool a defense. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Speaking of retooling, the Blues hope to do that at the trade deadline. I mentioned the Horvat deal earlier today. He was officially traded yesterday. What does his price signal for Ryan O'Reilly? And what does it signal for Barbashev and Achari, who could be more sought after than expected at the trade deadline? We'll get into that coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, what happens for the Cardinals if that ace starter does not become available by the trade deadline? There's at least one ESPN writer who seems skeptical about it. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We spend a lot of time talking about free agency because that's the flashy stuff. And honestly, it's the easiest stuff to talk about. You have a list of names. When you're talking about trades, you have the league and you're trying to figure out what the best fit is. I think that is where the Cardinals bolster their team this offseason. Tanner, I would say the number one question that Cardinals fans have about the team going into 2023 is, all right, does this team have a legit number one starter? Now, there's other questions. If you're wondering, like Tanner said yesterday, hey, who's going to bat second? Who's going to bat fifth? One of those two spots feels light compared to what you would hope it would be compared to the other legit contenders in the National League. I get that. That's a reasonable concern to have as well. But the big one is, all right, who's going to be the number one starter? You look at the other National League teams, they've all got a clear-cut guy at the front end of their rotation. Cardinals really don't. Could be Jack Flaherty. Maybe Miles Michaelis steps steps up. Maybe Jordan Montgomery, what we saw at the end of last year, was real. And he's actually closer to a number one than a number three. Those are all possible, I would say, less likely, though, than what Cardinals fans would hope. And so where you turn is, okay, maybe they can get that guy at the trade deadline. Well, earlier today, ESPN.com put together a piece. I thought it was pretty insightful on who the most likely trade pieces will be for each team going into the 2023 season. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. As I was reading through this piece, T-Bone, I think we had the same takeaway, which was this. Man, as you look at the top trade candidates from other teams, there are not a whole lot of starting pitchers that are listed And if this ends up being the case, and there's always some surprises as we get closer to the trade deadline, but in this hypothetical scenario where this piece ends up being correct and they they had everything right, what happens to the Cardinals if Jack Flaherty isn't that number one starter? It's just merely good, 
and they don't have a number one starting pitcher to be able to trade for. What does that do for them as we get closer into the middle of the season? I, I think it keeps them held into kind of that second tier of the National League when they would go into the playoffs. Because we, even without an ace, I still think they win the NL Central. I still make think they make the playoffs. But they probably aren't a team that's going to be earning a buy into the playoffs. They're probably going to be around that three seed that they were last year. And I think it keeps them on that second tier in, in the playoff picture of, okay, without having that legit guy that you can give the ball to and say, all right, go out there, give me six innings and shove with some swing and miss stuff, then they're going to be basically in the same spot where they were last year, where they're kind of pitching to contact, they're kind of flirting with danger potentially, and they're just going to be looked at as a team that's probably not going to be favored in any series they go into because they just don't have that guy. Though I think they should have been the favorite in that series against Philadelphia, there were some people that thought Philadelphia was a better team because they had those guys that were at the front of the rotation could shut down their offense. So I, I think if you don't have an ace in your rotation going into the postseason and there's not anybody available at the deadline to go make that move for they're going to be viewed as kind of a second-tier team. They're not going to be able to take that next step that we thought they can do this season if Jack Flaherty's not healthy and they can't find an ace on the trade market come July 31st. I think all of what you just said is true. I would also add that if they are going to be missing that number one starter, they could conceivably take the Braves' 2021 path where it's, okay, we're just going to bludgeon everybody to death with our offense, you know, because you look back at that team, and while they had a, a good rotation, it was really built around their bullpen and their ability to just hit the long ball. I mean, you look back at that postseason, Eddie Rosario was amazing for them. You had the outfield that was kind of put together on the fly, and you had uh, Austin Riley and uh, Freddie Freeman. I mean, their offense was really the driving force behind their World Series win. And I think that's going to be what this team has to become. And so that's why as I look at this season, and you know, I'm, I'm higher on this offense than most probably here in St. Louis. I, I kind of agree with most of what we talked about yesterday, where I, th- I think they can be a legit top five offense in all of Major League Baseball. And that brings me back to the designated hitter spot. And this is where I, I, I think that Nolan Gorman and Juan Yepes and Alec Burleson and whoever is the odd man out really in the outfield Those guys become really important for the Cardinals, especially early in the season, because they're going to be trying to figure out that outfield configuration. They're going to be trying to figure out, all right, what do we have in our rotation? What do we have in that bullpen? And while that's taking place, you need this offense to really solidify itself. And so as I look at like Nolan Gorman, for example, who we heard from John Mosellock during uh, Cardinals winter warmup, they're still really high on. I think they need to have a big-time season out of Gorman, especially early on as a left-handed hitting uh, player at that DH spot. I was excited how he played last year. Um, obviously, there were some growing pains, but do believe he's a talented guy. I do think he's someone that one day could be a middle-of-the-order type hitter. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes when you throw these younger players into things, you, you do need a little bit of a learning curve or a little bit of patience. We saw that last year. He was right around 30 home runs over the course of the season when you include what he did in AAA as well. And I was reading this piece over on ESPN.com that we're referencing on the the most likely trade candidates from each team. And they had Nolan Gorman listed for the Cardinals. And that makes sense to me. You look at where he fits into this team. If Juan Yepes ends up taking that DH spot and running with it, there's really not a spot for Nolan Gorman. And so I... I do think he's the guy most likely to be dealt at the deadline if one of those starters does become available. But if not, I mean, my hope is that he can become one of the pieces that is the driving force behind the offense, figuring things out. 
I, I think he will become one of the driving forces. I, I think Gorman's going to have a big year. But to your point, if Yepes runs with that DH spot, there really is no spot for Nolan Gorman because you're not just going to throw him out there at second base unless Brandon Donovan is really struggling because Donovan's the better defender. He's going to be probably the leadoff guy would be my guess going into the season. So it's tough for me to figure out what the role is for Nolan Gorman. So I can see him being one of those big trade chips that they can potentially be moving at the deadline. I could also see Burleson kind of fit, fitting into that role where I don't really know what his uh, role is on the roster right now. He's probably the fourth outfielder, but what happens when Walker's ready to come up? And I, I think he's going to be someone that's going to get like second, third crack at the DH spot behind Gorman and behind Yepes. I think in the best case scenario for the Cardinals, and, and it's hard to say this because Yepes is so good against both right and left handers. He doesn't really have major splits. I think in the best case scenario is you've got Yepes that ends up becoming your left handed or ends up being your DH against left handed pitching, and Gorman becomes your masher against right handed pitching, and then you've got Burleson as that fourth outfielder. I, I think that's the best case scenario for the Cardinals. But Gorman's going to have to earn that, and I don't know. I don't know if he can take the job from one. Yep, it's going to be a tough task to do because Yepes is an all-around hitter. Gorman's more of just that power. I do think he's got the potential to hit thirty bombs this season. I don't know if he'll get the enough enough at bats to do it. But that's. I think that's the best case scenario. Is you got those two are going to end up kind of platooning that DH spot. We got this, and by the way, our text line three one four three nine 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 six four six. I mentioned how the Cardinals can maybe follow the path of the Braves, where it's it's more offense than pitching, specifically starting pitching. Uh, that is able to get them through the postseason uh, from the 6-3-6. Guys, the Braves had great starters as well. They had both the offense and the starting pitching. I mean, I, I think we now have a revisionist history on what that rotation was. They really had three guys that they leaned on going into the playoffs, and it was Freed, Ian Anderson, and Charlie Morton. They were using openers by the time that they got to the NLCS. I mean, you look back at the way that they started those games, they had Jesse Chavez start a game for them in the NLCS because they didn't really have another starting pitcher that they trusted. You go to the World Series and the way that they ended up starting those games for their team, it was Freed getting two, Ian Anderson getting one, Charlie Morton getting one, and then Dylan Lee and Tucker Davidson started games for them. This was not a team that had, and Freed, you could argue, was a legit number one starter, but they were more in the in the lane of what the Cardinals are going into this season with. So if there is a formula for the Cardinals, it, it's probably that 2021 Braves season. I would also add that the 2021 Braves are kind of the outlier in the way that we've seen things operate over the last 10, 15 years in Major League Baseball. Yeah, you know, I could see where the Cardinals go that route where the offense ends up carrying them to that World Series. and You've got that one guy that's kind of the ace and then you kind of build it around him with the rest of the rotation. The one spot that I think the Cardinals are lacking from that 2021 team is the Braves had like four legitimate relievers. And when I, I when I say legitimate, I mean they had swing and miss stuff because I'm looking at like A.J. Minter, 9.8 strikeouts per night, Magic, 11 strikeouts per nine, Jackson, 9.9 strikeouts per nine, Will Smith, 11.5 mm-hmm. strikeouts per nine. Cardinals bullpen's only got two of those guys. Now, maybe one of these guys like, uh, was it Rod- Rodriguez, the one they got in the Rule 5 Looking. draft? Yeah, maybe he ends up being someone that ends up be- being one of these bullpen pieces that we're not talking about now, but we're talking about when we get to around July. Maybe Zach Thompson takes that next step and becomes that swing and miss left-hander out of the, out of the bullpen. But that that is the difference. And honestly, the biggest difference for me that would make me kind of hesitant to say they can be the 2021 Braves is, yes, I can picture the offense being what the Braves offense was where they would just mash their way to a World Series. Yes, I can imagine the rotation being pretty similar to the Cardinals. The bullpen, the bullpen has always been my big thing once you get to the postseason baseball. And right now the Cardinals bullpen doesn't look like this. And it to me is what 
held them back last year, too, was you didn't have enough swing and miss guys. You only had two guys you truly trusted, and you saw how that kind of pushed Ollie to go a little bit quicker in his decision-making and led him to pushing Ryan Helsley, which fell apart in Game 1 in the in, uh, NL wildcard round. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. Jeremy Rutherford is going to join us coming up at the top of the hour. He had a really good piece earlier today on where things stand right now for the Blues and why he doesn't believe that a trade will get done during this 10-day break. We'll get to that coming up at 12 o'clock. We'll also discuss it a bit coming up next, including what the Bo Horvat deal does for Ryan O'Reilly's price. Did it signal what the Blues can expect for an expiring captain centerman like O'Reilly? We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The star pending unrestricted free agent forward. Now we know he's hurt. He's going to be out for a while and it's still early because the St. Louis Blues, like all clubs who are you know, looking at a playoff picture, uh, don't know if they're willing yet to go all in. But the ask for Ryan O'Reilly is going to be similar to what normally would be for a player of this stature. You're talking about a draft pick, you're talking about a prospect. The draft pick could be determined by the quality of the prospect. So it is, again, still early, but... Ryan O'Reilly is officially in play. That was Darren Drager last week talking about the possibility of Ryan O'Reilly being traded alongside Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. If you guys want to get involved in the show, we'll get questions and answers in about 10 minutes or so. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line if you guys want to get any questions in. But let's start with Ryan O'Reilly because yesterday there was significant uh, news in the NHL front. The Vancouver Canucks have officially traded Bo Horvat to the New York Islanders, and they did so in return for Anthony Beauvillier, who we've talked about a lot over the last couple of years here in St. Louis, and their former second-round pick, the Islanders' former second-round pick, Atu Ratti, I believe is how you pronounce his name. That looks right to me. He's 20 years old. He's a former second-round pick. He's up in the NHL right now. Most people believe him to be, according to the um, scouting reports, a middle six centerman is kind of what his, his projection is long-term. They also got a conditional first-round pick in the 2023 draft in exchange for Bo Horvat. So a first-round pick a prospect, and a middle six type of a forward. That's kind of what the return was for an expiring deal, a captain, but a player that is very different stylistically from what we've seen from Ryan O'Reilly. He has 31 goals and 54 points so far this year in 49 games. Tanner, when you saw this news yesterday, the return for for Bo Horvat, what was your reaction in relation to the Ryan O'Reilly sweepstakes? Did it move anything for you in terms of what you were expecting for O'Reilly? Uh, not really. I, I think it kind of confirmed kind of what my original thought process had been when it comes to the O'Reilly trade front, which was it's probably going to be around a prospect and a first-round pick. I, I think that's what it was going to be. I, I don't know if you'll see them getting kind of that middle six forward. One, I don't know if the Blues would want that, but two, just – three pieces coming back in return. I think it's more of the prospect type, maybe a lower prospect than what you saw in that deal for Bo Horvat, and also a first-round pick. I think that's going to be the asking price for Ryan O'Reilly. And when I saw that and I saw that this was the deal, you know, I, I thought, man, they got a lot for Bo Horvat on a deal in which he's not even signing a contract extension either. There's been no talks yet between the two sides. So I thought, you know what, if that's what it goes for a unrestricted UFA center for next year, 
yeah, I, I think that's a great. I bet Army's looking at his chops right now going, man, we may not be able to get that kind of return, but we can probably get something pretty similar. Yeah, I think it just confirmed what I was expecting. Like first round pick and a prospect, I think is what you're looking for right now with Ryan O'Reilly. I don't think you're going to get as much for O'Reilly as they did for Bo Horvat. Agreed. And the reason why is because I think the Islanders and Lou Lamarillo kind of mentioned this yesterday. I think their expectation is that he's going to be around for the long term. Bo Horvat is going to be a long-term member of the New York Islanders. I don't know if that's going to be the case for Ryan O'Reilly. Bo Horvat is 27 years old. He can be a core member of that team moving forward. O'Reilly's in his 30s, man. His next deal might be like a three-year contract, four to five million dollars as a middle six center. Bo Horvat can be a number one center on a contending team right now at this point in his career. So, that trade was more similar, and I know it's different in terms of the years that are available, but just bear with me here. The Bo Horvat trade that the Islanders just made is more similar to the O'Reilly deal that the Blues made in the offseason than it is the Blues trade of O'Reilly that is coming up at the trade deadline. So I, I don't think it really changed anything for me. The one thing that I do like is that the return was significant. And so it tells you that there there is a marketplace that is out there right now for legit centermen on contending teams, which was the expectation. But I think this set the market, and now the Blues are going to follow it. I do not think that this means anything is imminent on the Blues front with Ryan O'Reilly. The reason why is because he's he's still not playing, man. I I think teams are going to want to see him get back out there on the ice before they make any kind of a deal. I am also glad that this got the Horvat deal got done sooner rather than later. That way, because then more teams, once they see O'Reilly playing, now know, okay, we're not in on the Bo Horvat sweepstakes. Now they're all their attention is on Ryan O'Reilly, who's going to be the probably the second best centerman available now that the deadline now that Horvat's off the board, unless Taze becomes available. But Taze's future's still up in the air. I I'm glad to know that this was done sooner rather than later. So now more teams can turn their attention to O'Reilly and start to bid against one another. So the other guys that could be of interest at the trade deadline, and there are many of them for the St. Louis Blues. Two of the top ones are Ivan Barbashev and Nola Chari. Jamie Rivers was talking about those two recently on whether or not it makes more sense to trade them or resign them. Here's what Jamie had to say. I think this was last week on the fast lane. Look at Ivan Barbashev. Like, would you venture into the waters of a three-year, $9 million deal for Ivan Barbashev? $3 million a year. After that, Noel Achari makes one25 How about a two-year deal? $3 million. So I look at it from a standpoint of... Should the Blues maybe look to strengthen the foundation of their team, or keep the culture, keep the foundation of the the blue collar? And the, the, like this to me would highlight the fact of this is what we are. So here's why I I don't think I would do what Jamie Rivers is, is talking about there. And I respect like just difference of opinion here. I, I mean, as I watch this team right now, I, I don't see a whole lot of culture of like trying really hard or the the hard working blue collar types of players and that's not a shot against Barbie or Achari I think it just speaks to how difficult it is to just have a couple of guys that are playing that way you need everybody to play that way and right now they're not and those guys are out there on the ice so for me I'm looking to trade all of the guys that are in pin or are pending free agents man O'Reilly trade him Vladimir Tarasenko, trade him. Mikola, trade him. Barbie, trade him. Achari, I would be more open to re-signing because I don't think that the return is going to be as significant for him. But if you're able to get a second, maybe even a third-round pick, I would consider it. And maybe you still end up re-signing Achari in the offseason. But for me, I, 
I would not be hesitant to trading any of these guys because we've seen what it looks like with them on this team now for, what, four months? Yeah. And it's just not good enough. So I, I would be looking to reposition myself in the offseason and gaining as many assets as humanly possible as we get closer to the deadline. You know, and I agree with you. You know, you mentioned that you, you don't really see a lot of that hard work and kind of blues grit that we're kind of used to with like the Barbie and Achari line. And do they really fit into the identity of what this team is going to be moving forward? This team's identity, at least I think, is going to be more of that transition speed style team like you see that top line in Buchnevich, Thomas, and Tarasenko. So, yes, I, I I think they need to go to the deadline and just say anybody that's a UFA, it's it's a shopping spree. You you can have him for the right price. And if you don't end up moving to Chari because you don't get what you're looking for, maybe it is a second-round pick you're looking for and you don't get that offer, okay, well, then I would go to the negotiation table and see what he'd be looking for in a contract extension. I don't mind the idea of extending Nola Chari either, but I, I think right now the position that the Blues are in, I, I think it's just asset collection management at this point. Move as many of these unrestricted free agents that you possibly can, gain as many assets as possible so you can use those going into the offseason of 2023. So earlier today, this is what JR wrote about Barbie and Achari. He said, quote, Ivan Barbashev and Nolachari will be wanted by other contending clubs, but perhaps not enough to command more than a second or third round draft pick. They could also be players that the Blues want to re-sign. Those would be good signings, but they also wouldn't change the look of this underachieving lineup. I think that's where I'm at. I, I don't know necessarily that the Blues get better in the offseason forward-wise by going with somebody else as opposed to Barbie and Achari in those slots. I don't know. I want to find out, though. I, I think it is time to start making significant moves with this roster because I remember, what was it, November, I guess it would have been, when we were 10 games into the season and Doug Armstrong comes out and says, this team's either bad or underachieving. We're still there. The team is either right now bad or underachieving. And so I want to find out, was the roster just constructed in a way that we overestimated who they were? Were they bad? Uh, were they underachievers this offseason? You have a chance to be able to really overhaul things, especially from a forward perspective. And a- as much as people like Barbie, they like what we've seen from Nola Chari this season. I would be willing to move on from those players at the deadline to find out, are there other guys that you could bring in, whether it's via trade or free agency that could maybe make more of an impact that could change the complexion of the roster, maybe just the chemistry in the dressing room. You know, I'm not saying that either of those guys is a problem child, but maybe you bring in guys that are stronger personalities and come in and they can bring a little bit of that grit, that sandpaper that it it does seem like the blues are missing right now. I'd be willing to make that leap because even if you're wrong, I think that we have seen now that, the downside of the current situation is just as bad as what the downside could be of the new situation. You know, and I, I don't mind the idea of revamping the forward room either because I thought you made a good point. Maybe it just changes up that chemistry. Maybe it's just kind of an eye-opening wake-up call to some of these guys that have been on the roster for a while and have gotten used to this kind of winning style the Blues had before this season. Maybe, maybe that's the jolt that they need is instead of the always the go-to in the NHL, you know, fire the coach and the team will wake up. Maybe it's just redo basically that whole forward group. I mean, you have what? five guys I think in your top six that would be locked up if I'm thinking correctly so there's a lot of room for change there in that forward room so maybe that's the route that Doug Armstrong goes I wouldn't be opposed to it because like you said we're kind of seeing 
the low side of what things are right now, and it, it's not fun to watch. So I, I would be I would be up to the idea of changing up the forward room a lot this coming off season. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We'll ask Jeremy Rutherford about all of this coming up in about 10 minutes or so when he joins this show. We'll get to a game of better to forget it at 12:15. But coming up next, questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. We'll get into that coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text 314-399-9646. PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Here, uh, we got this one from the 636. Two-parter. Oh, boy. Part one. Why are you guys so conceited that you're the only show on the station that has to have the host's name as the radio show? Uh, first of all, that was um, that was something that came along when it was Rivs and BK. I asked Jamie, what do you want to name the show, sir? And Jamie said, this is what I would like to go with. And I said, okay, sounds great. So we just kept it for BK and Ferrario, except I got the front of the name and then Ferrario's yeah, the second I, name. Yeah, uh, I've been here three years and no name or no photo on the website. And so. this gets to part two. If you were to use your names, why isn't it the Tanner, BK, and Ferrario show? That's Tanner is the only one that seems to be consistently in the studio with you guys. That's also fair, too. Man, I like this text. I was worried about the two-part question. I like this text a lot. Um, listen, I I don't know. That's above my pay grade. Uh, from the 636, guys, do you just want to totally, totally start over and basically look like an expansion draft team for the Blues? I don't understand. At some point, they've got to build around somebody. I, I do think we talked about this a little bit in the open, T-Bone. I think that they are in a tough spot of... Who are you building around right now? Like the answer contract wise is your top four defensemen. And mm-hmm. then basically Kyru Thomas. Thomas and, and Buchnevich, yeah. arguably. And then Shin is kind of in there as well with a long-term deal. But if you ask it like rhetorically speaking, Hey, who do I feel comfortable building around right now? I mean, I, I still, I still trust Thomas. I think Thomas is an excellent player. I feel like I'm still the only one in St. Louis that's like a believer in Jordan Cairo. I totally understand if you're frustrated with his play. It has regressed a bit back to where it was at times early in the season, especially defensively. But Shin, you want around long term. If Achari wants to stay, I'd be totally cool with him being around Buchnevich for sure. It's a it's a short list, though. Like there There's a few guys, but given the contracts, there's a lot of players that are under contract long term that I, I don't feel great about right now. Uh, I'm with you there. And. I'm just looking at mostly the whole defensive core of Pareko, Falk, Krug, Letty. Like those guys have really been disappointing this season. So it it's going to be tough for them to. I, I don't want them to be like rebuilding because a rebuild is a long like five year stretch where you're just really bad. Look at the Chicago Blackhawks mm-hmm. for the last couple of years. 
but it's going to be tough to retool. I, I, I think the best way to do it is to sell off a lot of your pieces now, gain a bunch of assets that can help you try and improve in the offseason. Because I, I, if they get, th- let's say they get two first round picks from trading O'Reilly and Tarasenko at the deadline, I don't think they're using all three of those plus their own first round pick. I don't think they're drafting with all three of those picks. I think they're moving one or two of those to help them retool towards next season. But to your point, I, I think the core that they're building around is Cairo Booch Thomas. And then I, I think defensively, I think they have to build around Krug, Falk, Letty, Pareko. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's where they're at. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 636. Guys, why did, why is it that BK hates watching the Chiefs while they play? All he did was complain over Twitter while they were playing. So... Were you this, complaining the whole time? I, absolutely. I I was a miserable human being during that game. Absolutely miserable. And he, here's why. Tanner, you've probably experienced this a little bit more now that you've been in this business for a little bit. You, you do get a little bit of the, of the emotional pull taken away from you when you do this for a living because it becomes a job, right? Just like anything yeah, else. Absolutely. For some reason, the Bengals matchup brings brings that emotion back for me. I can't explain it. I can't explain why. There's just something about that matchup. And I'm sure Cardinals fans, you've got this where there's certain matchups that just mean a little bit more for you when the Cubs come to town, right? Um, Blues fans, when you play the Blackhawks, like there's still, there's an added oomph to that matchup. And especially when you get that into the postseason. When the Chiefs and the Bengals play, there is something about that matchup that that re-energizes me with at times a negative energy because of the way that the last three games have gone. So to answer the question, it I was super emotional during that game and I was completely unprepared for that to come out of me, but it, it I definitely was miserable during that game to say the least. I say, I'm trying to think who gets me that way. I, the Cardinals in the playoffs. I get that, that, that emotion back. Same when the blues were in the playoffs last year during that Colorado series and the series against, uh, the Minnesota last year is that right mm. um I, I get that same emotion back but like during the regular season like right now I, I don't have that same like fan passion of like oh I can't believe they're this bad I I just feel like it's my job and like the Rams I get that emotional about because I don't really cover them for sure. a living and same with Illini basketball I don't really cover them for a living I, we talk about them here and there and we watch the games but we're not divulged into them 24 7 like we are with the Cardinals and the Blues so those are probably the teams I still have that passion, that like emotion towards. But yeah, I I could see where you're coming from, where that one game gets you fired up. I, I'll let you be miserable on Twitter for a Thanks, day. man. I appreciate that. I, I was fully anticipating that entire game that the Chiefs were going to lose. Like the, the first quarter, I believed that they were going to win. And then starting in the second quarter, when they weren't able to capitalize on that late drive, I, I fully expected that it was going to be the same story again. And so I, I think that's how most people felt watching the game, where you're like, okay, eventually the Bengals are going to be able to capitalize on the opportunities that they've been given. Save your text. Yeah, I know the refs were the ones that screwed them out of it, but I, they, they never took advantage. They had the ball with two and a half minutes to go. That's Joe when Burrow, I thought it was over. Tie game. And I Chiefs punted from the 45, from the plus 45, fourth Love and eight. To see it. And the Bengals weren't able to take advantage. So um, credit where it's due. Chiefs are the best in the world. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're playing a game of bet it or forget it. 314-399-9646. If you have a scenario, we'll tell you if we are betting it or forgetting it coming up in about 15 minutes. But next, Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues insider for The Athletic. He wrote earlier today about what the Blues plans will and should be over this next 10-day stretch. We'll talk to him about it next year on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend of the Blues Insider for The Athletic. He's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on the show. JR, appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? Yeah, real good. Let's just uh, solve all these problems in the next 12 minutes. Let's all do right, it. Let's do it. Uh, let's start with this, JR. Why can't the Blues figure out how to operate with an empty net? Okay, so we don't have that answer. Uh, what's, the, <laughs> what's the next question? What is it? Is it is it amazing or what? It really is. And I never ever thought, what however many eighteen years covering this team, that I'd be thinking about writing an empty net goal story. Like you just get to the point where, you know, each time it seems like they go out there and make a mistake or two, and it's in the back of the net. Like obviously the odds are pretty high you're going to get scored on an empty net but not with some of these mistakes that they've made uh, through the, throughout the course of the year. What's it up to 17 now, I mm-hmm. think? Yeah, and they've, they've scored all of two while their their net is empty. So the, the extra attacker is really working out well for them. It is not working out, not <laughs> just so like much. a lot of other things here. But, yeah, so it's 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 been tough, and especially the two uh, circumstances the past two games where uh, not even getting a shot off. You're in the zone. Last night they get in there. I think I tweeted it. A uh, minute six, a minute six, and the only shot that you get off is the one that Shen has that's blocked. And then the other night in Colorado, obviously, they uh, they didn't get a shot off. And I think it speaks to the overall issues that this team has, Jr. And we, we've talked about them all year. It's not really breaking any news at this point, but it's all connected, right? You can't get the sustained offensive zone pressure, which then puts more pressure on your defense, which then puts more pressure on your goaltender. And I mean, Bennington was outstanding for two periods yesterday and you were able to kill six penalties off. I mean, it it looked like they were going to play a good game. And then suddenly once again, the third period happens. They gives, they give up three goals in a period for the 23rd time so far this season. I'm just I'm running out of ways to describe the fact that they can't suppress goals, Jr. Yeah, no, you hit on it. It's it is all connected, and I realize you know I'm not uh, saying anything earth shattering here, but I've always enjoyed hockey for that reason because everything has to come together uh, for the team to be successful. You look at uh, baseball, and sure, that's a team sport for sure, but you go up to the plate and you got to hit the O uh, two curveball. You know, it's on you. But in hockey. Uh, that's the situation. These forwards got to get back. The defensemen have to do their job, and the goaltender has to do his job. Of course, uh, Jordan Bennington did that last night big time, uh, but he didn't get the help uh, that he needed from, from the team in front of him, and that's what we've seen a lot of. And you know, I think the one thing that's concerning is you know, the past couple of years, you've gotten good play out of uh, guys, let's just throw out uh, Justin Falk. You know, but last night, tough mistake. He's got a chance to move the puck to the right, to the left, get it out. He flips it. Uh, and it hits a, a jet player, Connor, and uh, it's in the back of the net a second or two later. Um, and there's been other mistakes. I mean, we don't need to, to name him, uh, but uh, there's been a lot of players who have contributed to that. And uh, the disappointing part is that it's been the veterans. I realize this is a lineup right now that is just, I mean, seriously, you look at it, uh, you know, whether you want to call it AHL, you want to call it a hodgepodge mixed match lineup uh there's not a ton of good quality nhl talent on there right now just because of filling in for some of these injuries uh, but still 
these veterans should be able to lead. And uh, even Craig Ruby was questioned that a couple nights ago. So uh, just a really tough stretch for this team right now. Jeremy Rutherford is our guest. You can find his work over at The Athletic and follow him on Twitter. He's at JP Rutherford. All right, JR, let's get into kind of the nitty gritty of it. I, I mentioned to open up the show today. One of the things that I do think, like if you're looking for a silver lining, and there's not many of them right now, but if you're looking for a silver lining to this five-game losing streak and the way that they went into this break, it's that there's clarity now. There's closure on the fact that I'm not sure that this was ever in question for Doug Armstrong, but it might have been for some fans. You know what the plan is now. This team has to sell. There's no doubt about it. They are a clear-cut seller as we get closer and closer to the trade deadline. But with that in mind, you had a really good piece earlier today over on The Athletic about what that means for Doug Armstrong over the next week or two as we are in the, the middle of this uh, this break for the team. What do you think Army's plans are for this break, JR, for any of our listeners that have not read your piece yet? Well, just a little context here. What I like about what I do now is I'm not writing during the game. I'm watching the game. And then when the game's over, it's a clean slate, cursor's blinking, you know, empty file. And BK, I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, what's important right now? Not always what are people talking about, because if you follow what are people talking about, sometimes it can lead you down, you know, a tough path. Uh, but I think right now people were just, okay, you know, I, when I wake up tomorrow, I want this roster to be ripped up. <laughs> and I just don't think that, you know, that can be the case. Now, I also have to provide this context. When I sit down and write the story I did last night, I don't have any knowledge that Doug Armstrong may or may not be making a trade today or tomorrow or next week. He could very well make a trade during this 10, 11 day uh, break. But as I sat there and assessed the situation, uh, I, I looked at it like this. Okay. Fans are upset. They want the roster ripped up, but I don't know that it can happen in these next 10 days. First of all, as you guys mentioned, you got O'Reilly's not even skating to my knowledge yet. He told me last week that he was going to get some more images taken this week, and that would determine when he could get back out on the ice. And then furthermore, uh, you got a situation where our team's ready to pull the trigger with the Blues. Does it make the most sense for Doug Armstrong to make a trade now as opposed to the 24, 48 hours leading up to the trade deadline? On March 3rd, I think it's probably better if he waits and you get a couple teams that really want to get something done there right before the buzzer. So uh, as I see it, I don't think there'll be a trade in the next 10 days, especially involving those top two guys, O'Reilly and Tarasenko. Uh, could there be something with Barbashev, Achari, Nikola, you know, those types of guys? Uh, sure, but I don't think that's going to be anything that changes the complexion of what the Blues are doing. So that's on the trade front. The other question that I've got for you, JR, because one of the things that I've talked about a lot with Alex is, okay, if you can re-sign Achari, willing to do that. that. I mean, he's played very well for them this season. He can play up and down your lineup. It's not going to break the bank. He's He's a guy that you'd like to keep around. But I want to know that I've got that extension in place first before we get to the trade deadline. And if you can't come to terms then I would probably deal him. Do you think that's something that uh, Doug Armstrong is going to be doing during this 10-day break is looking at, okay, what's it going to cost to keep Ivan Barbashev? And are we willing to do that? And if we can, let's go ahead and get that done now. Same thing for Achari and Ryan O'Reilly is somebody I know you talked about or talked with and wrote about last week. Do you think those are conversations that are being had this week? Yeah, I think they've they've probably already happened, and I think you know again you could see a resigning in the next few days. You, you know, if if not a, a trade, or you know, I, I think that here's the way I look at it: Doug Armstrong for sure has to know what those guys' intentions are. Uh, they are going to get uh, some phone calls. I'm sure they already have. 
And I think that if you don't have a deal in place with a guy like Barbashev, Achari, if you can get a third round, maybe even a second round in the case of those guys, uh, you have to go ahead and do it just because you're going to get an asset uh, for a guy who could not come back. You know, the one thing I like to say about those guys, just to kind of piggyback on your conversation before, uh, those guys are great players that can really help your team, Barbashev, Achari. But sometimes you have to have a really quality team playing well at the top of the lineup, talking about your top six forwards, talking about your uh, top four D for those types of players to really be able to take you to that next level. I'll use a guy like uh, Pat Maroon as an example, you know, so revered for what he brought to this team, but guys, if the top six aren't playing well and Pat's doing his thing, you know, on the third line, it doesn't show as much. He's not able to go over to the Boston bench and say, you guys are after, you know, he, he can't do that type of stuff. If the top guys aren't playing well. Same thing with like an Achari here. He can have a game like he did last night where he's all over the place and he's giving you the $1.25 million worth. But what does it mean in the big picture? So definitely if those guys aren't re-signed, which again, that wouldn't be a bad thing to bring Barbashev and Achari back. But if they're not re-signed, you're probably going to have some nibbles and you would have to uh, see what you could get uh, and flip them uh, before the trade deadline. JR, I want to go back to Ryan O'Reilly for a second. You know, we were just talking about leadership for the Blues, and you had the exclusive last week, and Ryan O'Reilly said, you know, there have been conversations, and he said he wants to stay here in St. Louis. Is Ryan O'Reilly more valuable to the Blues in the in the future as being on this team signing an extension and being a leader during this retool, or is he more valuable to the Blues if they move him and gain assets to help speed up this retool? So it's it's a great question, and I'll break it down this way, Tanner, is, uh, okay, so you see the Horvat return. And, you know, I think even the people in Vancouver, my colleague at The Athletic, Thomas Drant, said that it wasn't overwhelming necessarily. Now you have Kevin Weeks reporting today that Vancouver didn't even shop that deal around the league. They got focused on the Islanders' offer and went with that, and maybe other teams would have offered more. You know, do they, do they get better offers as they get closer to the deadline? That's kind of what I just brought up with O'Reilly and Tarasenko. So, you know, we can kind of softly compare what Vancouver got for Horvat to what the Blues may get for Ryan O'Reilly. We also have to keep in mind that Horvat's 27 years old, O'Reilly's 31, Horvat's eighth in the league in goals, uh, 21st in scoring right now. O'Reilly's got six assists and 16 points on the season. And and on top of that, he's hurt. So he's coming back. What are you going to get for Ryan O'Reilly? I mean, do you get a uh, a middling player, a middling prospect, and maybe a first-round pick? If you do, maybe you'll have to do that. But that kind of leads into your question is, is he and are the Blues better off to bring him back next season? I think that they could be, you know, given the situation that they're in right now, looking for uh, leadership, looking for players who can – kind of just keep this thing going in the right direction, but you have to look at his production. Is it tailing off? Uh, you know, can you expect to get 20 goals from Ryan O'Reilly? You have to get that kind of production to warrant bringing him back. And then the second part of that Tanner is what can you get him for? Can you get him on a two or three year deal? Uh, can you get him for $5 million or is this a situation where he's going to want three or four years and five plus million? I think that would determine to me, uh, whether it's worth bringing him back and, and whether what you know about Ryan O'Reilly, uh, whether he can continue to deliver that to you for the Blues. If not, it probably makes more sense to move him. Jeremy Rutherford is our guest for just another minute or two here on 101 ESPN. JR, earlier today I was listening to Darren Pang, and he was on with our morning show, and he was talking about how every night that he watches the Blues this year, he just remembers more and more 
the value that Alex Steen brought to the roster. And a couple of examples that he brought up were just like line changes, you know, where you've got a guy that I think it was Jordan Cairo that he referenced didn't quite get to the red line and it made Justin Falk. I think it was uh, late on a, on a shift. He was trying to get off the ice and then he had to circle back and get back into his own zone. And it led to a goal against, and it's just little stuff like that, right? Where, that would have been something that Alex Steen in his mind would have held guys accountable for in the past. And he hasn't necessarily seen that in the same way this year or last. I I am curious, Jr. when you hear stuff like that and you think about the leadership of the team, I am not questioning Craig Berube. I think Craig Berube is a good head coach that should be around long-term, but we know how this works in the NHL. These coaches are hired to be fired when you hear stuff like that and, and you've been around this team long enough, is there a question in your mind as to whether or not Craig Burby is going to be around as long as you expected him to be when he signed that contract extension? Yeah, no, it, it's fair. Uh, first of all, you know, just uh, you know, I can't hide from the fact that in my writing, in my tweets, things like that, I've been supportive of Craig Burby and the job he's doing. And I think that uh, the roster uh, probably isn't uh, a roster that a lot of coaches could take into a game and, and, and have success with. I just think that there's a lot of questions about this roster. So with that said, you know, you look at Craig Bruby and his situation, I think he's probably doing, uh, you know, a lot with what he's got. But at the same time, you have to be in charge of things. You have to be in control of things. Um, you know, we hear things that happen on the bench or, you know, things that, aren't being said or are being said or doors being slammed and bickering with the head coach, all that stuff. I kind of dismiss because you hear that with every coach. You heard it with Hitchcock. You heard it with Baruby. You heard it with uh, all these guys, even during the Stanley cup run. I mean, those are just guys being uh, competitive and, and, and caught up in the moment, so on and so forth. But, you know, yes, Craig Baruby has to have a handle on guys learning. And when you don't have guys like Alexander Steen and Jay Bolmeister and those guys around, it makes it a lot harder, and it's probably a situation where the coach even has to be, you know, more hands-on, which then leads to you're probably hearing his voice too much. So, so yeah, I mean, I heard Darren Pang say that, and you do miss tremendously guys like Alexander Steen. Unfortunately, you know, guys like him move on, and you don't have that influence on the bench and in the locker room, and it's up to some of these guys to do it. I know the Blues have guys like that with O'Reilly and Shen, but there's a new wave of players on this team who are being paid like stars and are going to have to grow into those types of roles sooner than later to, to gain that respect. And, you know, I think the blues are just kind of in a transition period right now with that and don't have that. Like we saw during that Stanley cup run. Jr. Appreciate the time as always, man. Great piece earlier today over at the athletic. We'll be following you on Twitter at JP Rutherford and all always reading over at the athletic as well. Enjoy your week off and we'll talk with you again soon, man. Great to be on the Tanner Show. Thanks, Lockhart. <laughs> you got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford, our friend of the Blues Insider for The Athletic. Again, give him a follow on Twitter, at JP Rutherford, if you have not done so already. I, I think the leadership thing is just, it's so hard to be able to quantify when you're not in the room. Like I, I think sometimes, and I, I, me and Alex just fundamentally disagree on this, and Tanner, I don't know where you fall on it, but I, when we talk about culture, I think a lot of the time it's a question for me of, is it the culture that's causing the winning or is it the winning that's causing the culture? I, I think it's it's one of those chicken or egg things, and I, I tend to lean more towards the when you win, it's really easy to have good culture. It is because 
People are happier around the room. The things that are going well are being rewarded. That voice that you're hearing every day that maybe is barking at you and you hate what they're telling you and you just want to play a different way. It's a little easier to follow that stuff when you're seeing the results following. That culture is tested in a more significant way when you start losing. Bill Belichick, right? Let's go up to New England. What was the the Patriots way? Because dozens of teams across the NFL over the course of the last 20 years have tried to take that from New England and implement it into their team. That culture only worked because Tom Brady was there. They had the guy that made it work because Tom Brady is one of the greatest players that we've ever seen in the history of the NFL. So Bill Belichick and the defensive wizardry and the way that he operated with the secrecy and the stern way that he talks to people inside of that those locker rooms like that works when you have Tom Brady doesn't work the same way when you're in Detroit or Kansas City or Houston or wherever they've tried to implement that. So I'm not like saying that that's the problem here in St. Louis with Craig Berube so much as it's just even the greatest coach in the NFL over the last 20 years, his culture, the way that he operates, it only works if you've got the right dudes on the, on the field. It only works here in St. Louis if you've got the right guys on the ice. So right now you just don't have the right guys. I don't think that they should fire Craig Berube. I don't think he's the problem. Do they have a bit of a leadership void? Maybe, but I think it's more about them not them just not playing well than anything else. And then that devolves into other issues. So that's where I am on all of that with the leadership side of things. You know, I kind of fall on both sides because I, I do agree with you that, you know, winning does cause a cause a good culture. I mean, there's no coincidence at the moment Brady was gone. All of a sudden, nobody wanted to play in New England when everybody's, oh, I hate going to play with Bill Belichick at practice. Well, no, you enjoyed it when you were winning and winning mm-hmm. Super Bowls with the GOAT. So I, I think there is a part of it. But I also do think some locker rooms need that one or two guys that can help translate the message during bad times to players. How often is it that Alex mentions, you know, David Backus was kind of that second voice for Ken Hitchcock to really help get the message across to players? Because, yes, it does grow old when you are losing and hearing from your coach constantly about what you are doing wrong because there's not a lot going right. But you also need, I think, some guys to kind of be also that, hey, you know, here's what coach is saying. You know, we have to actually do this because we're actually struggling because we're this is why we're losing games. I do think there is part of that that comes into play. And it, like you said, it's tough to know if that's the issue for the St. Louis Blues. I would think Brayden Chen's that guy. I would think, especially that's the now thing, that we've heard him under Dick Neighbors. I don't want to just sit here and say, like, in 2019, Brayden Chen was uh, this great leader and now he stinks. Or Ryan O'Reilly in 2019 was this great leader and now nobody's following him anymore. Craig Burby was this great coach and now suddenly the the message has gone stale. I just don't believe any of that. Like, I refuse to believe it. And so I'm giving these players more credit than I think what a lot of others are because I don't think they suddenly became like this this horrible group of guys this bad culture I I just refuse to believe that I I think that there's other stuff that's gone wrong and it's more about what's taking place on the ice than it is what's happening off of the ice that's that's me personally though and I I very well could be wrong on that but I, I agree with you there because I do think the Blues have those guys that are those leaders in the locker room I think Shen's that guy I think O'Reilly's that guy I you know, I, I think one of the defensemen is those guys. I, maybe it's a quiet, silent leader like Justin Falk or Colton Prego or Nick Letty. I don't know. But I, I do think they have those leaders. Jordan Bennington, clearly an outspoken leader for the Blues. He's called out the team multiple times to the media. So I do think they have the leaders. I, I think it's, to your point, is it's just coming on the ice to where it's, man, it's tough to get out of a tough culture when everything is going wrong for you. And right now, the blank is hitting the fan for the St. Louis Blues. The wind has been taken out of their sails, and they just don't know how to get it back because they know what the future holds. They know they they 
they played themselves into sellers, and, and they just don't know how to regain that winning culture back. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we've got to talk about an extension that took place in New York recently. I think there's a comparison on the St. Louis Cardinals. Wonder if you guys would be willing to give one of the Cardinals players this extension. We'll get into that coming up at 1230, but coming up next, 314-399-9646, the Air Comfort Service text line for better to forget it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's BK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. Yeah, 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service sex line for bet it or forget it. If you guys have a scenario, we'll tell you if we are betting it or forgetting it here on BK and Ferrario. All right, let's start with this one. Bet it or forget it, T-Bone. Aaron Rodgers will never play for another NFL team other than the Packers. He will finish his career in Green Bay. Ooh. I'm going to forget this one. I think he plays somewhere else. I think he ends up on the Jets this upcoming season. It feels like there's too much smoke to not be a little fire there. I kind of felt that way last year, though. Maybe not the Jets, but there was a lot of smoke for him being traded. But I guess the I Packers like were more I felt like last year it pushing. was all on Rodgers, and this year it's it seems like it's coming from the Packers side as well, where they're like, you know what? We're kind of done here. I think that's the difference. Is they're the team that they're the side that ultimately has to make that decision. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. I think I'll forget it because I, I think the Packers are kind of what you were just saying there. At the point where they realize, you know what, I don't know if there's much more upside in our roster with Aaron Rodgers because you saw what happened this year. You missed the playoffs. You were, and it took you on a, a late season run to even get into the conversation of being a playoff team. So I'll forget this. If the Jets are willing to pony up, and based on everything, it sounds like they're willing to trade first round picks for him. I, I think they're going to do it. I think Green Bay would be willing to move on from him. Would you do it? Trade, if, if you trade were the Jets, would you trade your first round pick for him? I, I would. I would. I, I think. He, you can put yourself into the conversation of being one of the top teams in the AFC if you have Aaron Rodgers. Because when I look at that Jets team, the only issue they had was quarterback. Like, I, I love the weapons they have on that team. You know, when Brees Hall comes back from, what do you have? Was it ACL or Achilles? It was ACL, right? Mm-hmm. Torn ACL. When he comes back, you've got some weapons at wide receiver. Their defense is good, and Robert Saul is a great defensive coach. I think all they're missing is the quarterback. Now, I'm not saying they're going to win the AFC if they get Aaron Rodgers, but I think they've they put themselves in the conversation like right behind the Chiefs, right behind the Bengals, or right there with the Buffalo Bills in that second tier. So they have the 13th overall pick in this year's draft, the Jets do. Recent 13th overall picks include Rashawn Slater, the tackle for the Chargers, Tristan Wirfs, tackle for the Bucks. Christian Wilkins, a defensive tackle for the Dolphins. He's a good player. Uh, Deron Payne, defensive tackle for the Commanders. Hassan Reddick, edge rusher right now for the Eagles, but previously with the Cardinals. And then before that, it's Laramie Tunsil, Andrews Pete, Aaron Donald, Sheldon Richardson. That's the last 10 years at the number 13 overall pick. It's a lot of good players. If you believe that Aaron Rodgers still has something left, I think you got to do it. But... If you're skeptical, if you thought last year was the start of something real and he's going to be on decline, I that's that's a tough one. Would you rather have Derek Carr or Aaron Rodgers if you're the Jets? If you were offered both, and let's say it's first-round pick, that's all you got to give him. 
I think I would take Rodgers still. I, I I know there were times where I watched Rodgers last year and I was like, oh boy, that's not the same guy. I do think a part of his struggles were that he just never got into a rhythm with his wide receivers, and I don't think he ever really trusted them. I mean, when Randall Cobb still like his one of his favorite targets, that told me everything I need to know. So I, I still think Rodgers can play closer to that MVP level than closer to being a backup. So I, I would say I would go Rodgers. I think I would go Derek Carr. I know that sounds crazy, oh, that and I know crazy. I'm a Rodgers hater. It's like but picking Purdy over Brady. No, it's not. It's no, very much not. Yeah. The reason why is because I I think that Derek Carr is suddenly underrated by most people. I think he's like the 13th to 15th best quarterback in the league. And I think you're going to have him for the next five years. I would rather have that than Aaron Rodgers for one, maybe two. So I think I would lean on lean towards Derek Carr if I was uh, the Jets. All right. Better to forget it. The Eagles had the easiest road to the Super Bowl in the history of the Super Bowl. So there is a little bit of data on this. Kevin Cole tweeted this out. He uh, he works for a bunch of analytics places and pro football focus. So take this for what it's worth. Said the Eagles had the weakest strength of schedule in the regular season and in the postseason. It is the first time that that has happened for a Super Bowl team since he began tracking such a thing. Their toughest opponent this year with their uh, healthy quarterback was the Washington Commanders, according to his data. Well, how can that be? They played Dak, right? Yeah, they played Dak twice. One, no, twice. Yeah, he was healthy for both, I think. No, se- second time he was not healthy. Oh, well, remember that was, was the uh, Thanksgiving Day when they played against Gardner Minshew or Christmas Eve. Oh no, Eve, no, I was saying, Eve. I was saying that Dak was healthy. Yeah, I remember Gardner Minshew was in for one oh, of those. Oh, I games. see what you're saying. My bad. Yep. Um, and they faced who was some? I thought we said somebody else. They oh, Trevor Lawrence too. So I well, okay, I, I'm not going to take those numbers that serious anymore since he's saying Washington. But I think I will bet this. I mean, I can't remember in my lifetime. And look, my memory of football goes back to Arizona's Super Bowl loss to Pittsburgh. So what's it? Oh eight, something like that. Like that's the first one I truly remember. I can't remember an easier schedule. Like both quarterbacks that they face, Purdy slash uh, Johnson and Daniel Jones. Like those guys aren't like franchise altering quarterbacks. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet this. I, I think this was one of the easiest in Super Bowl history. I mean, it's pretty tough to be able to take them seriously in their postseason success so far when they went up against Daniel Jones, who everybody was crowning after their ridiculous wild card victory. And then the corpse of Brock Purdy and Josh Johnson, who could barely even take a snap without falling over himself. So I, I learned literally nothing about the Eagles over the last couple of weeks and what they are. I think the Eagles are really good. I believed in them during the regular season. I thought they were an excellent football team. I still believe that to be the case. I think it's pretty crazy that they're favored, though. I, I don't think that they're a better overall team than the Kansas City Chiefs, if the Chiefs are healthy. And that's the real big question right now is like, how many of their wide receivers are going to be able to play? Can Willie Gay get back? Will Legereus Sneed be out of the concussion protocol? And that I can't answer. So I get why right now they're favored. If next week we find out, though, that the Chiefs are healthy, I think the Chiefs should be favored in that Super Bowl. That's what I was going to say, is if the Chiefs are healthy, I agree with you. They should be the favorite, and I I would take the Chiefs if they're healthy. Honestly, I think I would take the Chiefs now, too, but I I can understand where the Vegas Lions are coming from favoring the Philadelphia Eagles right now. And and to your point, I do think that 
Philadelphia is a good team. I think schematically they're one of the toughest to defend because Hurts can beat you with the run or they can run it with the running back as we saw this past week or he can just throw it to his best weapons in A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. So like offensively, I think they're very tough to stop. But I, I still think the Chiefs, if they're healthy, are the better team than the Philadelphia Eagles. By the way, Cooper Rush started that first game for the Dallas Cowboys. All right, so they the, faced uh, Philadelphia once. Eagles. Yeah, rough. Uh, all right, better to forget it. Jordan Walker will be exposed in the majors this year the way that Nolan Gorman was last year and will eventually have to be sent back down to AAA. Can I start on this one? Yeah. I'm going to bet it. Because that should always be the expectation for 20-year-old players that come up to the big leagues. There's going to be a hole in his swing. I don't know what it'll be, but there's going to be something that big league pitchers are able to expose, and he's going to go down and work on it. Now, I would also add this. I don't think that that means that Jordan Walker's a failure in any way, shape, or form. If he comes up and struggles, Bobby Witt Jr. struggled. He was the number one overall prospect last year. Um, We've seen this around all of Major League Baseball. When you get these young guys that come up, pitching is so good right now in Major League Baseball. You should expect there to be some struggles for Jordan Walker. So I'm going to bet it. I think that Jordan Walker, the expectation probably should be that he'll be sent back down to AAA at some point. And if he's not, man, that is one hell of a sign that this is a really, really good player that the Cardinals are building around. I'll say I'm going to bet it, too. And to your point is if he doesn't struggle, I mean, he's going to be one of those guys that's in the conversation for NL Rookie of the Year if he doesn't win NL Rookie of the Year. But I will bet it because, and I can't remember, it's been a while since you sent this to us in the group chat. I can't remember if it was change-ups or breaking balls in the minor leagues he really struggled with last year. So already seeing that there's a hole in his swing in the minor leagues. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. He will adjust and learn from that working with the Cardinals uh, during spring training and in the season. But if there's already a slight hole that you can pick out when you're looking at a scouting report that he struggles with, again, I can't remember if it's changing for curveballs. Major League pitchers are really going to expose him on that. So I I will bet it. I I do think there's going to be a point where he will come up. You probably see him get too off to a hot start. He goes through a bit of a struggle. And in theory, the Cardinals with this deep lineup that's number two in Major League Baseball, according to ESPN, should have enough guys to where if he struggles, they can send him down to AAA to get more playing time and not feel a big void in their lineup. So I, I will bet it. I do think at some point he will be sent back down. Final thing here, better to forget it, the Cardinals had five Hall of Famers on the roster last season. Let's go through this. Albert Yachty. Albert Yachty. I think, I think Goldie's Goldie. there with the MVP. I think, Arnato. I can say, I think Arnato will get there. Arnato will be, Arnato's going to get hurt by the Coors effect in the Hall of Fame. I voting. think he's a no-doubter because of the gold gloves. And Roland getting in, their careers have been really similar to this point. I, 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 think, would, I think Arnato's a no-doubter. I would think so too, but there's a bunch of old guys that write baseball and, you know don't understand if he gets an mvp I, I think for sure he'll he'll end up getting there Wayne so the question the is really Wayno. yeah and did anybody that came up last year like are any of their younger guys going to be hall of famers i think answer, answer to that is no i i think they had four i don't think that Wayno's going to get in personally does it change if he ends up getting to 200 wins this year i don't think so see i think he might with 200 wins that's where i i kind of draw the line where i think you're going to see this Modern voters will start to look at him a little bit differently. Let me look at his jaws. I know that that's something that a lot of the voters will look at. Baseball reference keeps track of this, and it's one of those like fancy numbers that will tell you whether or not a player is quote-unquote worthy of getting into the Hall of Fame. According to jaws, he's really far off. Like He's, he's at 47 career wins above replacement. I know people laugh at this stuff, but again, it's what the voters will take into account, and therefore we have to as well. 
Uh, the average Hall of Fame pitcher is at 73. Again, he's at 47 mm. in his career. Uh, his peak is is pretty good, but again, still about 13 wins above replacement off. I, I just don't think that he's going to be able to get in. I, I think that he's one of those real Hall of Very Good. He'll, he'll be remembered in the lore of Cardinals fame, and he should be. He's one of the best pitchers in franchise history, um, but I do not think that he ends up getting in the Hall of Fame, right, wrong, or indifferent. Yeah, I guess I'll agree with you there now that we're seeing the Jaws. But I think there should be a serious conversation around if he gets to 200 wins because I think that's going to be the new benchmark for starting pitchers moving forward in Hall of Fame voting is that 200 mark. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer. But coming up next, last week, the New York Mets gave Jeff McNeil a new contract extension. That contract extension to be able to buy out two years of arbitration is a four-year deal worth $50 million. Tommy Edmond has three years left in arbitration, but has been is, is slightly younger. He's about three years younger than Jeff McNeil. Would you be willing right now to give Tommy Edmond a four-year contract extension of $50 million? I put out a poll on Twitter at BK Sports Talk. You can also go ahead and text us 314-399-9646. Would you sign up for a four-year $50 million extension for Tommy Edmond? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Edmund with a drive out to deep right. It is gone. It's a walk off. The Cardinals were down to the Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. About 10 minutes or so, we are getting into the junk drawer. But that audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest, Tommy Edmond was a huge factor for the Cardinals a year ago. He's going to be, once again, a huge factor for them in 2023. He's their starting shortstop going into the season. Very well could end up being a guy that steals, you know, maybe 30 bags for them once again. Maybe more because of the new rules. And I do think that the new rules add a little bit of value of a guy like Tommy Edmond who can play anywhere on the infield that you need him to. Second, short, he's got some defensive versatility and real value at both of those positions. It's all of that as the backdrop to a contract extension that was given out last week while I was out of town. The New York Mets gave Jeff McNeil a shiny new four-year $50 million extension And they did so in order to avoid two years of arbitration. So they bought out two years of arbitration and then added two more years to his contract. Now, it's worth noting, Jeff McNeil is going to be 31 years old this upcoming season. Tommy Edmond is going to be 28. So Tommy Edmond is a significantly younger player right now than Jeff McNeil is. In fact, Jeff McNeil was like 27 when he got into the major leagues and became a significant player. So Edmond is already at a place where McNeil was when he finally got into the big leagues. Tanner. If you were in John Mosellock's shoes and Tommy Edmonds representation called and said, hey, we just saw what Jeff McNeil got. And I believe my client is similar in terms of overall value. They come about it differently. McNeil's is mostly offense. Tommy Edmonds is a lot of defensive value. But if you look at their wins above replacement over the last three years on a per 162 game basis, they're basically the same. Jeff McNeil is at 4.6 war per season. Tommy Edmonds at 4.7 war per season over the last three seasons. If you're 
John Mosaloc and Edmund said, I'll sign a four-year deal worth $50 million. Would you do it? I would not. I, I would not sign Tommy Edmund to a contract extension. I, I think it is best set for the Cardinals to just play it out with Tommy Edmund because, yes, looking at how this contract is structured, I can see where Tommy Edmund will make potentially you know $6.25 million next year in our arbitration year two, which is what McNeil is getting next year. And, or, excuse me, he's getting this year. And then 10.25, which is what he was getting in his, what would have been his arbitration year three. I can see where maybe Tommy Edmund builds up to that. The part that I don't see him getting is around that $15.75 million when he hits the open market. I, though his value is close to him in terms of war, I, I don't think teams will look at Tommy Edmond and pay him that because a big chunk of what or his war comes from is his great defense. His bat has not led him to be a leadoff hitter. He's a solid 260 hitter, but he doesn't get on base enough. And though he does provide good defense right now, his defense will decline with age. And I'm not saying he's going to be a terrible defender by the time he reaches free inching 2026 at the age of 31, but it may start to take a step back. And when it does, his value will start to go down. And if his speed loses a step, so does that stolen base number that that's attached with him. It also drives up his uh, kind of value where I think it was two years ago, there was the article from Rick Hummel talking about Though his on-base isn't high, he gets the second base a lot because he gets on first and then steals second. I, I just wouldn't do it. I, I would just play out the process with Tom Yemen, and then, and then if he's still playing at a high level, then I would figure out the contract extension with him then. But I don't think he'll ever get to the point where he's making around $15.75 million. See, I do. I, I think there's a really good likelihood that by year three of arbitration, he's somewhere around that number. Right now, he's slated for about 4.2 this year. Next year, if he continues on the same track, most of the time, those – go up like 1.8 times so he'll be around seven and a half ish and it could get to you know 14 15 million dollars by year three of arbitration for Tommy Edmond again if he continues playing at the same level that he did a year ago there's no guarantee of that he could very well drop off a bit defense takes a bit of a step back and now you're talking about maybe by year three of arbitration closer to 10 million dollars instead of 14 or 15 but it's possible so the reason why I bring this up is because what you would then get is, you know, maybe it's four years guaranteed and then you get a couple of club options on the back end where you get his age 32 and 33 seasons as club options if you want them, if you're the Cardinals. I think I'm with you. I don't think that I would do this for Tommy Edmond. The reason why is just because as you look around the market of what it looks like for players like him, it's typically not super strong. Like, Jose Iglesias is still available right now for anybody who wants to sign him. Jose Iglesias is not all that different of a player than Tommy Edmond in terms of, like, glove first, contact hitter, not a super high on-base percentage. Colton Wong, now, he was a second baseman. We have now seen Tommy Edmond prove himself as a shortstop. Colton Wong, when he was available on the open market, got a two-year deal worth $18 million, and the Brewers basically shipped him out of town because they didn't want to continue paying that contract this offseason. Eduardo Escobar, two years, $20 million. I know third base, but switch hitter, has pretty good contact rates, has been a, a good pro over the years. These guys that are Didi Gregorius, two years, $28 million. Again, different than Tommy Edmond in terms of guy that probably doesn't play shortstop long-term when he signed that deal, moves over to second, is more of a hitter than a, a defensive player. But... Most of these middle infielders that aren't at that superstar caliber, they don't end up getting these massive contracts. So I don't think you're gaining a lot of surplus value by signing him now. And when I sign these deals early, that's what I'm trying to get. So I, I think there is a better way to go about it. And I'm with you, Tanner. I think it's going year to year in arbitration. You got him this year for 4.2. Next year, maybe it ends up being seven. Year three, maybe it does end up being 14 or $15 million. If it does, 
so be it. And good on Tommy Edmond. And you'll appreciate the fact that you got those first two years at a pretty below market value deal. And and, and I'm just spitballing here, but if Wynn is the shortstop of the future and he's ready by the time uh, you get to, say, 2025, that final year of arbitration for Tommy Edmond, he takes over that starting shortstop position. And then you basically have your replacement on a cheaper deal who will still be in pre-arbitration and Brendan Donovan to take the role of Tommy Emmon as that kind of Swiss Army knife can be your starting second baseman, play really good defense. I think Donovan's defense gets overlooked, but he did win a gold glove as the utility man this year. So there's kind of your replacement for Tommy Edmond if you want to look at that. And I, I think Donovan, I'm not saying he's a better player, but his bat plays more. He gets on base at a better clip. He's a legitimate leadoff hitter for you. So I would go year to year. And then again, if if you need to bring back Tommy Emmon, he's still playing at a high level, I would. Then I would be open to a conversation of a two, three-year deal around potentially that $15 million mark for him, 10 to $15 million mark. But I think right now you play it year to year, and Brendan Donovan can potentially be your next Tommy Emmon and be cheaper and still in pre-arbitration by the time you Tommy Emmon reaches free agency. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show from the 314-BK. Their wins above replacement may be around the same, speaking of uh, Tommy Edman and Jeff McNeil. But as you know, baseball players are not valued the same whenever it's a, uh, a, an offense versus a defense type of a thing. Kansas City's general manager came on your show and told you exactly that. He said that defensive players don't get paid the same as guys that can hit. I think that's the biggest difference between Tommy Edman and Jeff McNeil. Again, that comes from the 314. I think there's definitely some truth to that, and it's why I brought up the Jose Iglesias side of things, Colton Wong. But players like that, they get paid. Don't get me wrong. You you could totally see three years from now Tommy Edmond getting a three-year, $40 million deal on the market. That's in play for him. I just don't necessarily feel the need to be on the front end of that. Whereas if Jordan Walker next year comes up and is the player that they've sold him to be, yeah, there's going to be real conversations after the season as to whether or not you try to get him signed up long-term early on in his career before that money starts going to astronomical rates. Last year, we had the conversation with Tyler O'Neill for a reason. Uh, they didn't do it, and they were right to not sign him long-term. But if Tyler O'Neill last year put together another MVP type of a season, man, we could have been talking about this offseason getting into the $100 million type of contracts because of what he performs at the plate. I just don't think there's risk of Tommy Edmond doing that. Even if he becomes a 290 hitter, his on-base percentage is just not all that high, and he doesn't slug. So I, I don't think there's going to be a, a crazy high risk of him pricing himself out of the St. Louis market. I don't, I don't think that's something that we have to worry about here with Tommy Edmond. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, have the Blues given up to the point of actually talking about Craig Berube's job status? My answer is still no on that. But I do think it's becoming more of a real question. We'll talk about that coming up at the top of the hour. The Junk Drawer is coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Alongside 
Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about five minutes or so, we'll talk about we'll talk about Craig Berube's future here with the Blues. But right now, let's dive into the junk drawer. T-Bone, what do you got for us today? So I found a story that like taught me three things. One was that there's such a thing as pop-up urinals. Wait, Two, what? yeah, there's pop-up urinals. Apparently, over in Europe, they are under the ground, and at night, they rise up into a urinal. Really? Yeah. I was unaware of I, this. I didn't know it was a thing either. I learned that in the story. Also learned a story I never want to go to London. <laughs> and three, also These learned... These are just outside. Like, you yeah. just... And they just, just come up nice and casually. Also, three, I learned that that's the worst way to go out. Apparently, a man in London was crushed by one of these things while working on it. The hydraulic system, I think, based on the way oh, I read this, no. broke, and it slowly went back down and crushed him. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't need that. Worst I don't way need that to go in my out. life. Worst way to go out. What do you think his obituary says? Like, does it say, went out in the ur- urinal? Like, do they have to be legit with this? Oh, man. I I feel like you got to make up a story. I mean, I agree with you. Um, I, yeah, I don't know what you say. I, it probably is crushed by urinal. I, I, oh. Here lies Jack crushed by urinal in oh. London while on vacation. <laughs> Not the way you want to go. Oh, yeah, you definitely have to make up a story. So I, I went down to Orlando last week and um, we went to Universal um, for for a day. Man, some of their rides may make you question how, how you want to go. I, that's why I don't do roller coasters, man. So they got this one. It's been there for a while. I'd never been before. Um, it's called Rocket, I think it is. Uh, is that what it's called? The, yeah, Rocket Ride. And it goes like straight up. And I mean, like at 90 degrees, your back mm. is like falling off. You're, you're pulling back as no, you're no. going up. And then it goes straight down right afterwards. I love roller coasters. This one got me like feeling about, okay, what is what is the afterlife going to look like for your boy? <laughs> what is what is that going to entail? That's why, I, that's why I can't do roller coasters because my whole thought process is that is I'm terrified of heights. So me being like launched straight down at high speeds, even though I know I'm secure and I know they've been tested. I've seen the movies where they fall apart. I, I, I can't do Have that. you seen Final Destination? Yeah. Oh, man. A lot of things I'm not doing since I've seen Final Destination. Guess everything that you do. Yeah. Like anytime that I'm driving behind, a, you know, one of those trucks that has the like full-on tree limbs on the backside of it. I'm just fully prepared for it to fall out and come straight into my windshield. I I think it was, I think it's Final Destination. Maybe it was a different movie, but like a car or a wheel came flying into the stands at a race. Look, I got invited to the race, uh, the IndyCar race that was at a W, what is it, WTT Raceway. Mm. Almost didn't go because I was a little scared. Okay, I'm not going (laughs) to lie. I toughened up. I went. But I'd read this story, never going to Europe, never going to London. Pop-up oh, I, I feel urinal. Like just stay away oh. from the pop-up urinals if you're oh, going well, out to London. I'm not going to know if they're go. underground. I'm not going to know. Yeah, well, it's not, it's not going to crush you while it's underground. I know, it's but it'll still up. scare me. Yeah, it'll <laughs> pop up and I'll be terrified. That's fine. I think that's fair. The The strange thing about me is I, I'm with you on being afraid of heights. I also don't deal well with spinning. So, like, I See, can't I can do, do the that. teacups. But I can do like whatever roller coaster you want to throw out there. I can handle spinning. I just can't handle 
heights. Like I, I cower into like a little turtle shell, like when there's heights. So do you go to Six Flags? Are you no? Big Six I hate Flags? I hate amusement parks. <laughs> really? Yeah, because I all the rides I just don't do. Like roller coasters are the big thing at amusement parks. I can't do roller coasters because I'm scared. Even like uh, I'll do like a water slide, but the thing that gets me is like if you're walking up the staircase and you can like see through the staircase terrifies the crap out of me. Somebody on I the won't text line, 314 uh, I almost gave out their number. That would have been unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> I will drive as fast as I have to to get away from those log trucks because of the movie that I watched. Oh, I'm that's telling fair. you, if I see one in the middle of the lane, I will find a way to get away from it just because of that movie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're talking to the former NHLer Mike Rupp. Want to get his thoughts on what it looks like when a team that was a Stanley Cup champion as recently as the Blues were goes through this downward cycle. How long does it take to get out of this? And how do you find your way out? Is there is it a player problem? Is it a coach problem? What do you do to get out of a situation like this? We'll talk to Mike Rupp of NHL Network about that in about 15 minutes. But speaking of that coach, how much scrutiny is Craig Berube realistically under right now? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. One of the things I told the players that if this continues, you know, in my 30 years of watching the NHL, it's going to be okay. Well, then what happens? The coach, well, I told the players the coach is not going anywhere uh, because the coach came from the American Hockey League where he coached young players and made them better, and he coached veteran players and, and made them win here. So he's, he can do both. He's going to be here. I, I believe in the coach. I believe in the system. And it's this isn't a system issue. It's a competitive issue. That was Doug Armstrong early in the season coming out of that eight-game losing streak saying, hey, this is not a Craig Berube problem. This is a player problem, and we've got to get it corrected. With Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We'll talk to Mike Rupp, former NHL forward, in just under 10 minutes. But I do want to discuss a little bit the Craig Berube side of things because I think he's coming under some scrutiny from a lot of fans, and I think we need to discuss whether or not that's fair. Here's what Jeremy Rutherford wrote about the Berube situation earlier today over on The Athletic. If you haven't subscribed over there yet, you probably should do so. It's well worth your time. He said, quote, this is not to say that Armstrong won't be busy while many of the Blues are on the beach during this bye week. Armstrong will be exploring all of his options, including a review of Blues coach Craig Berube and his staff. He has been supportive of Berube to this point, and perhaps he remains so. But in the past, Armstrong has not been tolerant of coaches who admit publicly to not having answers on how to turn things around, which is part of the honest assessment that Berube has given at times recently. As much as the coach doesn't seem to be the main issue, and the Blues ownership group would probably prefer not to pay him the final two and a half years of salary to go away, Berube is going to have to come up with some answers. Again, You'd have to look high and low to find many people who believe that Berube is the biggest problem with the Blues, but when you've already had an eight-game losing streak this season and now you're in the middle of a five-game skid, the old adage applies. It's a lot easier to remove a coach or the staff from the equation than it is 20-plus players, especially when many of those players are on long-term deals. Again, that came from JR earlier today over on The Athletic. I think he sets up the situation well. 
the Blues are in the b- between the rock and a hard place right now because they have a good coach. Craig Berube is objectively a good coach. I think many would consider him to be a top five coach in the NHL right now. And despite that, the team is not performing. And so what do you do? Do you do you decide to go ahead and move on from the coach? Do you give him some more time? Do you say it's the players? What do you do here? For me, I'm keeping the coach and I'm figuring out, okay, what players do we need to make this work? Because the current construction, it ain't working. So we'll trade some of these pending free agents. We'll move on from them. And then we'll make things work with new guys. But I'm not moving on from Craig Berube because I genuinely do not believe that he's part of the problem. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think Berube's the sole issue for the problem. I think it's the players have just kind of given up on him and kind of quit on him. And when you when you hear that quote of, you know, or when JR says, you know, Berube doesn't have the answers. He said that he doesn't have the answers publicly. I, I think that's because he just he doesn't know what else to say to the guys. The guys have clearly not been responding to what Baruby has been preaching. We've heard him say all year long, you know, we've got to get off to faster starts. We've got to show more emotion. They haven't done it. You know, we've got to be able to prevent those backdoor plays. The Blues have not learned from that. They continue to allow backdoor plays. They are not allowing, they're allowing too many easy shot attempts in the slot. So I don't think Baruby's the problem, but to your point, they are stuck in kind of a rough spot because typically what the answer is in the NHL is when the players quit responding to the coaches, you just let the coach go. Now, the Blues are going to be able to potentially overhaul the roster by what we are saying if you potentially sell off everybody that's a potential UFA, but you still have some core pieces that are there. So I, I agree with you. I don't think Ruby is the problem, but I do think his job probably is going to be under a microscope in the near future, if not right now as well, because the players have clearly quit responding to, to him, in my opinion. That's just my opinion from watching from the outside. Sure. I, I think that they have quit listening to Craig Berube. I have not seen them show the emotion. I have not seen any changes throughout the season to say, hey, they're listening to what their coach is telling them. It looks like a team that's just quit listening to their head coach and is just going through the motions. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I would also add this. I think that he and Doug Armstrong need to get on the same page again. Because you look at it, and in the 2020 pandemic season when they signed Mike Hoffman, that was clearly not a team that was tailored to the way that Craig Berube wants to play. And Berube doesn't ask a whole lot. His basic belief is you've got to compete. You hear him say that word compete over and over and over again, and there's a reason for it. It's because regardless of the system that you're playing, regardless of the way that you want to play, if it's the rush style or the dump and chase, cycle, whatever it is, As long as you're out there competing, you can make that specific style work. And right now, they're not doing that at a high enough level. And is that a player problem? Is it a coach problem? I guess we can all have our differences of opinions on that. But the problem in 2020 was, man, they just didn't have dudes that were competing well enough. And right now, it seems like the same problems are starting to show up once again. They, in between, though, had a very good team last year. So they've got to find a way to be able to get back on the same page. I think that's the single biggest issue that they have right now is that the team that has been assembled, it sure doesn't seem to be functioning the way that Army believed that it should. And it comes down to when when Army's looking at it, did he mess up? Did he think that he went about it the wrong way? Or is Craig Berube utilizing it incorrectly? We want to talk about that with Mike Rupp, former NHL forward, now with NHL Network. We'll talk to him on the other side about What do you do when you've got a situation like this where you're asking yourself, is it the coach? Is it the players? How do we move forward? We'll ask Mike Rupp about that coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Jason. I'm Brandon Kylie. We're going out to the Brown and Crippen celebrity line to be joined by Mike Krupp, the former NHL forward. You can watch him on NHL Network's coverage of the 2023 Honda NHL All-Star Weekend live from South Florida beginning on Thursday. Mike, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? I'm well. How are you guys? Uh, doing all right. We could be better here in St. Louis, as you could probably imagine. Blues are riding a five-game losing streak heading into this all-star break. Uh, Mike, I'm going to open this up for you because you can take this wherever you'd like to. Whenever you look at the way that this Blues season has gone up to this point, what's your biggest takeaway from the first you know, 50 games or so of the season? Oh, man. Um I think the biggest takeaway is probably what a lot of people are asking. Is this a team that is closer to the 2019 team or is this a team that is um, and should look quite a bit different in the years to come? Uh, it's kind of that pivotal point where this team's got to evaluate who they are and what they are. Cause I, I don't really know. I mean, there's some nights when you watch them and you could be like, all right, I can see it. And they, they start to look like they're starting to look like themselves. And then, um, I just don't know what they're – I think it's really important for NHL teams to have some sort of crutch to, to lean on when times are tough. And that crutch is what you do and what you're good at. And kind of the common denominator by every player has to bring a certain element of their game, and, and it makes this team um, kind of almost predictable. Like I think the good teams in the NHL, they don't have to win every game, but you know that their game's going to look generally – somewhat the same from night to night, you know, and there's not much discrepancy from uh, winning and losing. And I feel like with the blues, there's a lot of discrepancy. Like it's either, it's either really good or it's really bad. And that's a concern of mine. So I think that that's the biggest thing is just who is this team and really, how do you, how do you move forward leading up to this trade deadline? It's interesting you say that because we were talking about this earlier today and their losses. It, it's been the same story almost every time I went back through and looked at their last 20 losses this season. And those games, Mike, they've allowed 97 goals and it's it's only one where they allowed three or fewer in that game. So when they lose, they lose big and it's because they're giving up way too many opportunities. And when they win, they win like three, nothing three to one. It's not hard to figure out, okay, what's the discrepancy here? It's, it's the opportunities that they're giving up to opposing teams. When you see that from a team, is there an easy fix for that? Because they've got their defensemen signed up long-term. You've got a lot of your best defensive forwards, specifically Ryan O'Reilly is a pending UFA. Same thing for Ivan Barbashev. How do you fix something like this when it seems so systemic? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough. And, and when you're looking at already being in 50 games in the season, it's I don't know how much you can fix it because there's been enough of a road up to this point. Um, but you're right. I mean, this team should defend first, and this is kind of how they're built. And with the emergence the last couple of seasons of Jordan Cairo um, and um, and Robert Thomas, that doesn't they're exciting. They can put the puck in the net. They can create a lot of offense but that still should not change who you are as a team and they have to defend first. And that's been a struggle of theirs. Um, so when you're yeah, looking at this group and I think that's the biggest thing when you're looking at this roster too, there's a lot of players uh, contracts that are up after this year. So uh, you got the big, the big three, in my opinion, Tarasenko, O'Reilly and Barbashev that are pending UFAs. And if you look at that group, we know Ryan O'Reilly does not want to go anywhere. Uh, this this is a this is a time where 
I've said it since January 1st, since the winter classic, I was like, these next few weeks should be a telltale of what Doug Armstrong's going to do. Is he going to, and this is a guy, this is a GM there that I got a ton of respect for because he makes hard decisions. He makes uh, unpopular decisions at times, but he has a good pulse on what his team is. And if you you know, rewind from what we've seen to today through January 1st, there hasn't been much reason to, to show that this, uh, you know, optimism for the playoffs this year. So I think that that writing's on the wall there, that you got to move these pieces and start kind of restructuring. So you got some nice pieces in place moving forward. Um, the Cairo Thomas contracts kick in next, next season. So they're going to get a big bump in pay. Uh, I still like Braden Shen. I think he can do a lot of different things. He signed long-term. Uh, the back end has a lot of years kind of in the bank right now. So it, it's not a full, I don't think this team has to rebuild, but I think they need a facelift for sure. Mike Rupp is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Again, you can watch him on NHL Network's coverage of the 2023 Honda NHL All-Star Weekend live from South Florida beginning on Thursday. You mentioned that they need a facelift, Mike, and we were just talking about this with the coaching side of things in our last segment. I, I think Craig Burby's a really good NHL coach. I would not even be considering moving on uh, now or after this season but it is something that has been brought up, especially as he and the team are searching for answers right now. Uh, Mike, when you've been on teams in your past and maybe there have been questions about the coaching side of things, what do you what do you look for from the outside looking in to determine whether or not that's something that would potentially be necessary? Yeah, I'm on the same page as you guys. I, I, I like the coaching staff there. I think that's a coaching staff that they clearly have one, and um, I don't think that's the, the problem. I, I think from the player standpoint, when I played, when you're going through these tough stretches, you know change is coming at some point. And I think sometimes as players, depending on what the outside noise is, sometimes as players, you, you're insulated to some degree because you're like, all right, well, you know, maybe this falls upon the coach or maybe this falls upon the general manager or maybe it's almost like you, you start creating excuses, right? And when those excuses are removed, you get a bump. Like that's why we see when coaching changes happen, every team gets a big bump. I mean, this season, all the coaching, the coaching carousel from the summer, all those teams had fantastic starts of the season because the players know that they're in the crosshairs now. Like <laughs> there's no one else to blame. Right. So I, I think that maybe, um, if, if that's the situation, just an endorsement on the coaching staff, I think does something to players like, Hey, this is our, this, this is our crew. Like this is our staff. We're moving forward with, we believe that this team can win with these coaches. And now it puts the players on in the spotlight. Like, Hey, we all have jobs to do. And I think that's something that St. Louis, and you can probably go across the board this year. I find there, there's an epidemic <laughs> in the NHL as far as with game managers, and I feel like there is a lot of players on NHL rosters nowadays that just simply don't know what their role is for that team to win and any particular night. I think every player nowadays is like, I got to score a goal. Well, this team might not be designed for you to score a goal. You might have to do X, Y, and Z, and then wait till you get that opportunity and, and then put the puck in the net, right? So I, that's the bigger thing is just knowing what your role is, providing that, and making sure you're contributing. And, and I think when you get those excuses out of the way, not thinking it's going to fall on someone else, when you think that, hey, there's no line of defense in front of us, um, we got to take onus on, on us as players. That's when you get results. Mike Rupp is our guest here on 101 ESPN. And Mike, there was some news yesterday on, on the trade front with the Bo Horvat deal. 
I am curious from from your perspective, you've got a probably a better uh, a read on this maybe than we do even locally because we've seen so much of Ryan O'Reilly. And so it's it's hard not to overestimate sometimes what the value can be for a guy like that. But do you think that set the market at all for a potential Ryan O'Reilly deal if he ends up being traded? Is the Bo Horvat deal something that we can compare it to? Um, That's tough. Uh, you, you know, I think that the Bo Horvat one is is really unique because he's been a very solid player in his career, but the year he's having uh, right now is, it's incredible. And, um, you know, he's, he's up towards the, the, the leaders as far as um, goal scored and, and the position he plays. Uh, I, I don't know that the package for a Ryan O'Reilly would be that because a lot of it is what you've done for me lately is, is how guys, I mean, that's why he got this pull. I mean, I don't think if if Bull Horvat is having a good season, they don't get anywhere near this. Even if they have a deal in place to re-sign him, if the Islanders do, it's the fact that he's he's on fire this year, right? And and Ryan O'Reilly is not on fire this year. He's still a heck of a player. I think he's got a lot to give. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily think that it would be comparable to that, but it's still a big piece. I mean, there's pieces, uh, there's teams out there that are in dire need for Ryan O'Reilly, and and we start we hear Colorado all the time being a a team that's rumored out there. I mean, uh, with Bo Horvat off the market now uh, in the trade market, maybe that opens up more for, for Ryan O'Reilly. And, and and it's a tough spot. I mean, when you're the captain of a team and you're a leader on a team and you've won a Stanley Cup there, you don't want to go anywhere. But this is kind of the business. And, again, that goes back to Doug Armstrong. I think this guy's got the kahunas to, to make the tough moves. And I think that that's got to be the tough move. Is you're going to have to trade him and get some pieces. The other one that uh, Blues fans have their their eye on is Vladimir Tarasenko, of course. Do you have any teams? Because the Islanders had been one that we had been rumored around for, for quite a while. I would imagine with the Bo Horvat deal, they, they probably are no longer uh, going to be a team for him. But is there any team that immediately comes to mind for you that would be a good fit for Vladimir Tarasenko if and when he ends up getting dealt at the deadline? Yeah, I think the New York Rangers are, are one that I, I think that they're they, they like the idea of, of Patrick Kane, but if that doesn't work out, I think that an, a second option, a good option, would be uh, Vlad Tarasenko. Um, Carolina would be a good one. I mean, Carolina lost Max, Max Pacioretty for the year. That was their one of their big offseason acquisitions. Um, they're a team that needs more finishers, and we know Vladdy can, can flip a game on its head real quick. Uh, those are kind of two that stand out to me. And then maybe in the Western Conference, I think there's going to be an arms race uh, as far as come trade deadline time between Dallas and Winnipeg and any name that's out there, these two are going to be calling on. And these two are battling out for the top spot in that central division. And I don't see that changing. They're going to be fighting uh, in the standings. They're going to be fighting for players available. I think Vlad Tarasenko would look great in one of those jerseys as well. Final thing for Mike Rupp of NHL Network here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Mike, what's your favorite part of All-Star Weekend? Is there any one thing that immediately you're, you're looking forward to? Oh, man. Um, you know what? I, I think it's – I always get a kick out of and, and have a, a good time of seeing the young guys going for, like, their first All-Star game. Um, and I think that – I always just sit there and think to myself because I wasn't that kind of player. I wasn't that caliber of a player. But I think that these players that are first-timers look around and these, the guys that are there, these are guys that they've watched as teenagers that they've idolized. And now they're one of them, and I love seeing them kind of steal the show. And we've seen Jack Hughes do that in the past. 
Uh, we've seen young players. I mean, look at even uh, Jordan Cairo mm-hmm. uh, and, and last year. I mean, th- those are cool moments because it's like you go from going there is, is observing and being like, wow, this is cool. Soak this in to like, no, man, you could be the headliner here. You're one of these superstars. And I love that because I think that can really do a lot for a player's confidence when he goes back to his NHL team. You can watch Mike Rupp on NHL Network's coverage of the 2023 Honda NHL All-Star Weekend live from South Florida beginning on Thursday. I would have to imagine that's going to be a fun uh, spot to be able to have the All-Star Weekend down in South Florida. Mike, we appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy yourself, and we'll talk with you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. You got it. That's Mike Rupp, former NHL forward, now with NHL Network. Always appreciate him hopping on with us. I... I think the biggest thing that I took away from that is is he's pretty much in line with what we've been saying about this team. And I I thought the part that he was talking about the game managers was particularly interesting. How he said I, I, there's an epidemic right now in the NHL of the lack of game managers across the league. I think that's part of what Darren Pang was getting at earlier today. It's just the management of the game. And I, I think sometimes... That is part of it that gets lost. It's like, okay, Jordan Cairo is a fantastic player in so many different ways. Get the red line. Jordan, uh, Robert Thomas is such a tremendous passer. Just shoot the puck sometimes. You know, like it's the little things that seem to be getting lost right now for this team. And it's easy to say for us on the outside looking in, but in some ways this is what they've always been. And so trying to get it through their heads on this is how you have to play in order to play winning hockey, I think that's a that's a really tough part. And it's, it's honestly what Craig Brewer was paid to do here. So the staff has to be able to get that taken care of. But I, I think that's one issue that is not just here. It's across all of the NHL right now. Yeah, I, I agree with what Mike Rupp said there. I, I do think that is part of the issue or some of the issue for the St. Louis Blues where you're seeing them not, as you mentioned, Cairo not get the red line. They're turning the puck over in their own zone. They're not just rimming it around the board. How often have we heard Craig Bruby just say, hey, you know, that's one we can't try and force it up the middle. We just got to wrap it around the boards. Or, hey, we just got to chip it in and go chase after it. It's not what some of these guys are used to doing. Cairo's just used to being the high-flying kind of get the puck and just go. He Sometimes he's going to have to play that kind of grind it out, play tough in the offensive zone to keep that possession that we've talked about where they're not having a lot of zone time on the offensive end of the ice and they're having a bunch of just one and done. And I do think that comes with experience. You'll see them go through these learning curves. But I think that has been part of the issue for the St. Louis Blues. And Bruby's preached that. You know, that was the issue with the fourth line last year was that it never had truly an identity. It was always they couldn't find guys that they wanted to play that style. Now they're just having each player individually have some sort of issue to where they have to try and figure it out where, hey, we can't just be loose with the puck at late-game situations. You know, we have to be keeping an eye on everybody in the defensive zone where we can't be watching the puck the entire time. So I think it is a good point for Mike Rupp, and it is something that some of these Blues players have had trouble with this season. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into the BK and Ferrario Rewind. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, Aaron Rodgers is talking once again. We'll let you know what he had to say earlier today on the Pat McAfee show and Jeremy Fowler as a report on what Derek Carr's future could hold. We'll get into all of that with some NFL quick hitters next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Right, let's dive into 
some NFL quick hitters. Surprise, surprise. Aaron Rodgers is talking again. What? Who could have seen it coming, really? It's a shocker to all of us that pay attention to such things. He was on Pat McAfee's show today, as he does most Tuesdays throughout the NFL season. Only during the offseason, so he can run his mouth. Always. Always running his mouth. All right, so he was asked about how long he's going to take to make a decision on whether or not he's going to play next year. And he said this, quote, sounds like the Packers are already having conversations out there that don't involve me. Found that to be interesting, end quote. So there's that. He continued, when I make up my mind, you guys and the Packers, not necessarily in that order, will know. Aaron Rodgers is going to play football next year. Let's be honest. What? He loves all of this way too much to give it up. I don't think it's going to be for the Packers. And I don't necessarily think it's just on his end this time around. I think he would have been fine last year with getting traded. I think the Packers said, bleep you. You're our quarterback. We just, we're going to sign you like this. This thing's done. You're going to be either a Packer or you're not playing. Those are your options. And Roger said, all right, let's go ahead and get this done. I think this year it's a little different. I do think this time around, I genuinely believe he's going to be playing elsewhere next year. I think the most likely spot is the Jets. I wonder if the 49ers get involved here. Just a random hypothetical. He's from that area as well. They've got some legit questions at the quarterback position. It was announced earlier today or yet last night, I guess it would have been um, that Brock Purdy is going to be out for six months with elbow surgery. Tommy John. Yeah. I wonder if they get involved as well, but I I think he plays elsewhere next year. Yeah. I didn't even think of San Francisco. I guess I should have since we always connect them to the Tom Brady rumors. So, Makes sense. I, I kind of agree with you. I, I do think the Jets are the team that I have my eye on, and I kind of want to see him go to the Jets. It'd be fun. Well, it would be fun, too. I don't want him in the NFC West because the Rams, if they have one good offseason, could be right back in the conversation as the top team there. But I, I do think he is going to be traded. It does sound more like the Green Bay Packers are pushing this more because last year he never said anything like, well, you know, the Packers are exploring stuff behind my back. No, it was always... Yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind going elsewhere. Green Bay was never involved in any rumor. It was always, yeah, you know, Green Bay wants Aaron Rodgers. This year, it's been a different story. It's been different wording when you look at all the reports. So I think he is going to be dealt. I I think the Jets are still my team to where I think that they will trade first-round picks to go get him. And, again, I said this earlier. I think they acquire him. They're up in that conversation. Maybe not the top tier in the AFC with Mahomes and Burrow. But I think in that tier, too, with the Chargers and with the Bills and Baltimore, I think they're right there in the mix. You know, one other team that I would throw into this mix is potentially a destination for Aaron Rodgers. It's in the AFC. It's a spot they've gone after Peyton Manning in the past. They reportedly went after Tom Brady as well. Tennessee. Oh. Tennessee's one that I would I was thinking Broncos, I but I was like, well, they just went and got Russell Wilson. Yeah. Surely that's not them. No, I, I would keep Tennessee in mind as well. That's, that's one other to maybe throw into the mix. All right, as we continue with some NFL quick hitters, Aaron Rodgers is not the only one that could be on the move this offseason. You mentioned Tom Brady. Another one is Derek Carr. Here's what Jeremy Fowler of ESPN had to say about his future. I'm told that this trade talk hasn't really sparked yet, but in the next few weeks it definitely will. So the Raiders are in control of the trade, but Carr has a no-trade clause. So they have to decide how much they want to get Carr involved in those talks, if he can go initiate a trade with another team. So it's my understanding that a lot of these dominoes have to fall Senior Bowl coming up this week. That's usually a place where teams like to meet and and debate and Mm -hmm. talk about possibilities. So things could heat up here soon. Yesterday, there was that random report that was like, hey, the Raiders might keep Derek Carr, actually. No, 
Uh-uh. Don't believe that for one second. This is the typical right before the senior bowl leading into draft season. Hey, don't call our bluff. You better watch out. We might end up keeping well, Derek it. Carr. <laughs> yeah. Derek Carr ain't going to be a Raider. They benched him the final game of the season so that way they didn't have to pay him next year. They essentially told him to go home, and he went, all right, I will. They can say whatever they want to publicly. Derek Carr ain't going to be back with the Raiders. Derek Carr's brother trashed the Raiders on NFL Network because he knew at that point in time that Derek Carr wasn't going to be back. I would be shocked if he's back with the Raiders next year. Is there a team that you would like to see him on? Is there one that comes to mind for you? Washington's the one for me. That's a good one. I think he would fit perfectly with Washington. I think it was yesterday or maybe it was earlier today. I can't remember where you mentioned how they've got a great defense. They've got some weapons there in their system. I I know it's been ugly in Washington. I still think Ron Rivera is a great head coach. So I want to see Derek Carr go to Washington. That would be the place that I'd like to see him go. In in terms of other places, Tennessee, you just mentioned them and and potentially the Rodgers sweepstakes. I could see them getting involved there. Uh, Otherwise, I think those are the main teams that I have my eye on. Maybe the Giants. It just depends on what they want to do with Daniel Jones. Carolina. Carolina, Carolina would be has the other some interest, yeah, in with Frank Reich. But, yeah, I, I think Washington's the team for me that I would circle and say, if you put him there, I think Washington would turn things around pretty quickly. Uh, the final thing here for NFL quick hitters. Did you see Tyler Huntley's a pro bowler? Yeah, what are we doing? Tyler Huntley started four games this year. He was basically the reason why the Baltimore Ravens got booted out of the playoffs. Listen, this is no shot at Tyler Huntley. He's a really nice backup to have. A pro bowler for going two and two and throwing for 650 yards this year. That's what we're doing now. We've got to find a new way to remember who the real pro bowlers were. Like when you are elected into the pro bowl as a starter, you were the first choice. You should be the one that is always remembered as the pro bowler this year. And there should be no acknowledgement like on the pro football reference page. It should not say Tyler Huntley was a pro bowler. He technically will be part of it this year, but it's because the first five starters for the AFC were not decided not to go. He should be remembered as an alternate. So that way, when you look back on his career, it shows on his Wikipedia page, his pro football reference, elected as fifth alternate in the 2023 Pro Bowl. I don't need to be remembering any of these dudes that got in there this low down on the list as legitimate Pro Bowlers. That's ridiculous. I, I'm with you there because, I, I one, I just think the Pro Bowl itself is still ridiculous. And at this point, I'm just ready for the NFL to just call it quits. But there's too much money involved, so I get it. But, yeah, I, I don't want to see he was a Pro Bowler on his football reference page. I hate it when they do that in baseball, when a guy gets replaced. The, the pitchers, I think, is different because you've got guys that just pitched the day before, so they can't they can't pitch. They need replacements. That's fine. But I hate when I, like, look at, you know, when I'm looking back at old All-Star games, like, oh, wow, he was an All-Star. And I look, oh, he was here because he was the replacement for the injured of the injured starter. Yeah, we need something that's going to tell that these guys weren't Pro Bowlers. And, man, I already knew the Pro Bowl was a joke, but when they invited Tyler Huntley, I really knew it was a joke. I'm sorry. I'm with you, Huntley. I'm sure he's a great guy. He started four games and cost him a playoff game. He's I, not a pro. Bowl. I can't believe that this is real. I, it, it feels like we're living in a simulation. I thought with I was this being trolled this morning when I woke up and looked on <laughs> Twitter and saw, hey, Tyler Huntley's been named to replace. I was like, did I just look at the fake Adam Schefter Twitter account? Yeah, it, I was like, what? It feels like we're all being catfished. All right, before we get out of here, we'll get to the BK and Ferrario rewind on the other side. Uh, one more piece of news to pass along. This comes uh, from Rick Stroud, who covers the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the Tampa Bay Times said that according to his sources, people around Tom Brady believe it is, quote, likely, end quote, that he will continue his career in 2023. We all 
expected this, right? Yeah. None of us thought that Brady was going to walk away given the season that he had. And he didn't ruin a marriage just for one football season. Have you seen some of the reporting around that, by the way? Apparently no. he lost 15 pounds this year, which makes sense. I was we say saw he looked him. different. He looked emaciated at, at times. Um, I, I think he's going to come back and have a better season next year. I, I don't think he'll be with the Bucks, but I think he's yeah. going to go somewhere and have a better season next year than what we saw from him. This I year. still think Las Vegas. I think he wants to go back and play with McDaniels. Makes sense. He's got Devontae Adams. I, I think si- now that I know about Purdy's injury more and I know he's out for a long period and you don't know about Trey Lance and Jimmy G's not brought back, I, I now I'm starting to see that more as a fit too. Originally, I was like, eh, you know, maybe you stay with your younger guys. Staying in the got. NFC makes a ton of sense, man. We were just oh, doing this, this during the break. Sucks. It's Jalen Hurts as the like clear-cut best quarterback in the conference. I think Dak Prescott is a definitive number two. After that, it gets tough, man. I mean, you can you can make a case right now, and I'm not kidding, that Justin Fields is the third best quarterback in the NFC going into next year. Depending yeah. on what happens with Rodgers and Brady, like it is devoid of top talent at the position. So if you're Brady, I would want to stay in that conference. I'm not trying to go over there and compete with Burrow and Allen and uh, Mahomes and Herbert. No way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. J- J- uh, Trevor Lawrence. No, thank you. Not I'm just good. that conference. I, I would look to find a way to stay in the NFC South like Carolina, maybe to where they're younger. They've got a better roster construction right now. Frank Reich, offensive minded head coach might be in a better spot there and you're in a terrible division as well that's tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley it's bk and ferrario here on 101 espn we'll hit the rewind coming up next we're right back to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn And I'm Brandon Kylie. If you've missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. So let's finish today where we started, which is with the St. Louis Blues. And I, I think that we got some clarity and some closure last night. That, that's the way that I would frame what we watched in that game. And the reason why is because It was just a continuation of what we've seen for the vast majority of this season. The Blues have now allowed at least three goals in a period 23 different times this year. That means basically one out of every two games, they're allowing at least three goals in a period. Three goals in a game is what you want to be at. And they're doing it in a period, and they're doing that regularly, man. I went back through earlier today to find out, okay, what's... What's the theme of these losses? And first of all, it's allowing three goals in a period. But secondarily, it's allowing at least four goals in every single one of these losses, man. And their last 20 losses, there is only one in which they allowed three goals or fewer. And it was the overtime loss against the Colorado Avalanche in early December. They lost that game three to two in overtime. Otherwise, here's the goal numbers that they've allowed recently in losses. Four, four, five, 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 four, four, five, 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 five. You get the point. It continues like that in every single loss over the last three months now. We know who this team is. 
They have told us time and time again, they lost eight games in a row for a reason. They have lost five games in a row going into the all-star break for a reason. They've lost seven of their last nine. This is a seller. This is a team that is much more likely to be picking in the top six or seven than it is to be participating in playoff hockey this year. I think Doug Armstrong has known that for a while. I think what has changed is that we on the outside where we wanted to grasp, grasp at straws, I think we're all coming to terms with it now of, all right, over the next four weeks, next 10 games, I think we all understand that we're watching the end of whatever this era of Blues hockey has been. I, I agree with you. And, you know, I, I think the players kind of felt that way, too. I, I think before that Chicago loss, I said this yesterday, I think they truly thought that they, they looked at the standings and they said, you know what, we're going to prove everybody wrong from the outside. We're going to prove Army wrong and we're going to show you shouldn't blow this up that we're going to go on a run. And then the moment they lost that Chicago game, a game that they should have easily won, the win was just let out of their sails. And you've seen ever since they've lost five in a row since, or four in a row since that game. It's been a five-game mm-hmm. losing streak leading into the All-Star break. So, yeah, I agree. I think we're at that point where – you can't really look at the standings anymore and say, you know what, they're a playoff team still. There's a reason to hold on to these pieces. Now it's more of, okay, what can you get for player X, Y, and Z to where you can feel comfortable with a quick, potentially quick retool next offseason? O'Reilly, Tarasenko, I'd be listening to offers on even guys that I would like to resign in, Nolachari. I think you have to start listening to offers on them. Even Thomas Grice, your backup goaltender. Like anybody that's got UFA status has now officially become been moved from potential trade bait to they're on the trading block. And I think Army's going to be having a lot of conversations over this break with a bunch of GMs across the league. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll be back same time, same place tomorrow, 11 to 2 o'clock right here on 101 ESPN. Again, if you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check out the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. Had a great conversation earlier today with Mike Rupp, the former NHLer, Stanley Cup champion. Coming up next, it's the Fastlane with Jeremy Rupp. Jamie Rivers, the former Blues superstar defenseman in studio, (laughs) and Michelle Smallman, live from New York. That's coming up next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.